welcome aboard the battleship pretension i'm tyler smith i'm david back and thank you for listening david yeah how you doing uh i'm doing really really great um really great i, I was I, I, for reasons i can't talk about in the podcast oh, sure, but I'm, right uh, uh i've been crazy busy lately mm-hmm. like with work like i feel i mean it's been it's a at the time of this recording, it's been almost a month since I came back from Paris, mm-hmm. and yet I feel like I haven't caught up in a way. Yeah, because work got busy in, in a way, and then I had some good work stuff that happened uh, this week that I can't talk about. Um, but That's then one also of those things about vacations, especially vacations where you go out, you go out of town. Something I didn't understand when I was younger is that the vacation it's it's only ever going to get so relaxing because i'm even on on vacation i know what i'll be coming back yeah to. exactly <clears throat> and yeah it's frustrating yeah um <laughs> but then also you know this time of year you know every year i try to like throughout the year like see more new releases so i'm not cramming at the end of the year but it's just the release schedule is such that there's always a ton of shit to see at the end of the year and i get so stressed out about it um and then of course i was at afi fest which uh, sure. we'll talk about but the you know that was uh, uh seeing a bunch of movies i still have a couple of reviews hopefully by the time you're hearing this those reviews are posted still have a couple of reviews to post um and we'll get to to uh uh some more thoughts on that with our with our guest uh in a minute um real quick i want to tell you since we have a guest i want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors they look great they sound great and tyler and i use them each and every day of our lives um what was i listening to today i was uh checking out the new new coldplay songs <laughs> it's uh i don't think of you as a coldplay person i'm not that sweater I, aside i've never been a like a fan of coldplay but okay. i've always like i've never disliked them either well that's them like you don't hate them you don't love them they're just kind of there I, I mean they're very similar to me to like late period u2 like which i've never liked either i don't i, I don't enjoy but i also don't really i usually don't hate it i mean I, yeah I obviously like like everyone i hated when a u2 album showed up in my itunes sure. uh, that i didn't want but um i think it's just a certain strain of music i love early u2 but like late period u2 most cold play and i feel like this there's some people who really love this band and take this take an event, uh, take this as a derogatory statement or a pejorative. But Arcade Fire, another band that it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of like they kind of they kind of sound like Coldplay to me. Yeah, um, they're they're making sort of like anthemic arena type, uh, you know, yeah. r- rock songs that uh, every time I listen to, yeah, new U2, new Coldplay, or like any Arcade Fire, I'm like. That's right. That's how I felt about the new the new Coldplay songs. Not being much of a music person myself for a long time. I don't think time, that's true, by the way. What? I mean, you're not a music person in the sense that you don't keep up. True. Well, but I mean, here's something. I'm, I'm going to say something nice about you, Tyler. Oh, okay. Is that I've always felt that you inherently have good taste in music. You might not like spend as much time seeking out music as sure. I do, but I feel like I could I could play a song for you at random. And you could say whether you liked it or not, and there's a pretty good chance that you'd be right. <laughs> like I feel like you you generally have good taste in music. Well, I that's you just very don't. Nice of you. you don't. You're not as adventurous as I am. Maybe. Yeah, and I think uh, yeah. Okay, uh, that's nice of you to say. Um, in 
I think what I mean in this case is that like I can't read music. I'm not a musician. Okay. Yeah. So when people have you and and compared to somebody like our friend West Anthony, who is just like music literate, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I feel like. I would occasionally hear people who know more about music use the term overproduced, and I never really understood what that meant. And then every once in a while, I'll hear a band mm-hmm. like Later U2 and like Coldplay, yeah. and this is not necessarily a, a, a slam, although I guess anytime you say something is over this, then that I guess it is. But it's just like, okay, no, I, that I get, where it just it feels like there's everything is just so disciplined and so produced that I feel like there's no room for any humanity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do you remember forever ago, there was an onion article that was like uh matchbox 20 in the studio, putting final touches on watering down of new album. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> uh, anyway, but anyway, uh, so yeah, new cold play. It sounded, it sounded like as good as it could. Yeah. It, it sounded sound. like old yeah. cold play, uh, like all cold play. Um, you know, you know, same cold play, different day is what I say. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, but it sounded great, as, as good as it could on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds, and they're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Now, Tyler. Yes. Um, we will get into it soon. Mm-hmm. But normally when we have a guest, we don't do a like, top of show topic. You had something you wanted to address because you, for scheduling reasons, you won't actually have a lot to contribute to the rest of the episode. That's correct. <laughs> so you've got some things that you wanted yeah. to, to, to address. So why don't you introduce our guest now? Absolutely. Okay. Our guest is our favorite person ever. It is... Editor at large, uh-huh. Scott and I. Hi, Scott. How you doing? Uh, good. I'm still a little tipsy from dinner, and I had two dinners, so uh, feeling pretty good right now. Wait, you're tipsy from dinner? Well, I had a drink with dinner. You drove here. I mean, yeah, but a drink. It's fine. A drink. But okay. wait, you had two dinners, so that mean you had a drink with each dinner? No, I had one drink and two. Dinners. Oh, you're fine. What'd you have? Yeah, I want to hear all about this. <laughs> I went to the Tipsy Cow. Okay. Got their Southerner sandwich with a, a very good uh, chicken sandwich. Had a drink with that, and then I left there. And I was like, still a little hungry, so I drove by In and Out and got an In and Out dinner. Uh, that sounds great. Um, what did you have to drink? Or old fashioned. That's my your go-to. drink. That's that is, my that is your gold. Your go-to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I also had a fast food experience on the way here. Not In and Out. It's been too long since I've been In and Out. It had go. been for me too, and I was like, sounds right. But I finally waited because I heard the lines had died down. I stopped and got the. Popeye's spicy oh. chicken sandwich. It's pretty. It's pretty good. Okay. Uh, not spicy. Was it as Weirdly. good as the Tipsy Cow? What's that? Was it as good as the Tipsy Cow chicken sandwich? Uh, where's the Tipsy Cow? It's on Ventura. Is that the main Sherman Oaks kind of drag? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I've been to the Tipsy Cow. I know. Solid I know where it restaurant. is. Good food. I um, have been there. Good food. Have? It's not bad. Um, 
yeah, you know what uh, recently closed that was around there that I really liked was Barrel and Ashes. I know. I was thinking about going there tonight and found out that I could not. Yeah, it cl- that was a good. Did you ever go to Barrel and Ashes, I the barbecue so. place? Really so good. good. Uh, really good. Anyway, um, but yeah, so the Popeye's chicken sandwich, not very spicy, but right. it, w- it was good. But weirdly, it's, it, it was like less spicy than if I got their spicy chicken. I don't oh, know. Oh, interesting. Well, that's okay with me. I don't like spicy food. Yeah, that's uh, you two together. Just, you're just missing out on so much in life. <laughs> I've gotten it's better. literally called the spice of life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Well, there's other spices as opposed to spicy. You sure. Know? Cinnamon is a spice. Sure. I like cinnamon chicken. I love it. Sure. Can't get enough. It probably would be good. It probably would be actually. Yeah. Now that I mention it, I uh, meant for it to be a joke, and then suddenly I'm like, no, I think we've we've come up on something. I've gotten better with the spicy food as I go on, but I'm still not to your levels for sure. I'm I'm, I'm not like a daredevil either. With no, I, I just understand. like spicy Nevertheless. foods, but I don't. Yeah. Um, okay. Where were we? I had something to oh, okay. ha- yeah. ask you guys about. So, oh yeah, I forgot to make fun of Scott for stomping his feet while he was being introduced. Um, oh, was I? Uh, yeah, we got we got way late. That's literally. Do you ever do that when you're like, "Wow, I was gonna say something," and like five minutes later, you're like, "Oh yeah, it was really stupid and <laughs> yes. not worth it." But um, then you most feel like the time. Yeah. <laughs> but then you kind of feel like, "Well, I have to say it." Yeah. Because yeah. like, don't know if I got that far. But that's the thing yeah. is, he was stomping his feet because he just wanted to be introduced so bad. He's like, "I want to be introduced." He was just stomping his feet and holding his breath. <laughs> but, do you know what I've done before in that situation? is I've like I've said out loud like oh I was gonna say something I forgot what it was then I don't remember what it was realize it was stupid and go like and ah, never mind I'll never think of it by the way and then say the thing <laughs> as course. if it's something I just thought oh of. that's nice <laughs> yeah the real problem is my shoes are quite heavy and I lose track of how loud they are all right so uh <laughs> they both nice do look shoes. like heavy shoes they both just look at my shoes yes. listener yeah they're nice shoes um Tyler what did you have that you wanted to talk about okay so First off, people will probably be able to hear a slight husk in my voice. Uh, I am once again sick. I don't know what it is about this year. I just can't seem to fight anything off. Um, but, uh, yeah, so what I will say is while I am sick, I have the capacity to be unusually... Yeah, a kid dropped it. It happens. I, honestly, I felt like you were carrying your iPad and... Someone tried to assassinate you. <laughs> it does look, yeah. <laughs> like you got saved modern Teddy Roosevelt style. Uh, so, All right, boy, sorry. That's, that's nothing for anybody. Nobody understands. Yeah, there's, an, there's a broken iPad here. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so when I am sick, I have the capacity to be incredibly like content and in a good mood. Sure. Usually when the medicine kicks in. I see. Um, or extremely introverted and unable to fight off my depression. Uh, so that's kind of where I was the last couple of days and it got me thinking and, but I still had to teach. And so today I was talking to my students about psycho and all of that. And just this, the whole time I was just thinking like, they don't give a shit what you're saying. They don't believe what you're saying. They wish in fact you would just stop saying it so they could go home. Uh, and I found myself just really discouraged as I came into the recording today and I wanted to, this could in in its own way be a whole episode, but given that the three of us write about movies, like I teach about movies and we talk about movies, all that sort of thing. Um, do you guys, I imagine everybody does. Do you guys deal with imposter syndrome? And if so, how do you fight it? Uh, honestly, constantly. I, um, especially like 
I'll be watching a movie and I'll have my own reaction, but then I'll also be thinking of like certain critics that I look up to and be mm-hmm. like, find myself thinking like, how would this person then I like, I try to stop myself from doing it, but I'm thinking like, is my reaction, does it match up to, am I thinking about this movie in the right, or like deeply enough or in yeah, the right enough. way? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would say I, that happens to me, uh, uh, a lot while I'm, yeah, while I'm watching a movie, I will often be thinking too much about that sort of stuff. Weirdly, after close to a decade of writing, once I sit down and start writing about it, I usually kind of find sure I I, I find my way to my true opinion, my true voice uh, on the movie. But I do have I do tend to question myself while I'm watching a movie a lot. I don't. I'm sorry to say um, <laughs> that is not surprising to me at well, all. It's, no, I know the fact that you don't is, if you'll pardon me, is one of the th- reasons that I had it today. Is because I was like, I'm going to be talking to Scott. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry, and motherfucker. I'm going to, you know, no. It, but it, but it also has the opposite problem where I will think about like what other people have said or might say, just knowing tastes and stuff. And I'll just be like, well, fuck that guy, <laughs> which isn't probably <laughs> healthy either. Uh, but it, that's what I'm saddled with. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I once. It was a. It wasn't your fault, Scott. But it was a conversation with you okay. that sent me into like a hours long just funk <laughs> like like or anger okay and i think be, we might have talked about it on the podcast before maybe off the podcast and i can't remember the name of the director well i'm sure i can remember um and i and now uh he made after lucia and then he made some something oh yeah his daughters name either um and uh, then he made that one with tim roth which i didn't see right. the, that was his english language one that he made that i, I didn't see but it was. It must have been around this time because it was his movie, Someone's Daughters. I can't remember what. It okay. Was. I can't remember the name. It's someone's name in their her Is daughters. It Tim Roth's daughters. Uh, no. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I'm. I was telling you like I'm interested to see this one. I really liked after you, after Lucia, and you were like, you said something like, oh, film Twitter hates that guy. Yeah, but I and, said that I liked his work. No, that's clear. what I'm saying. Okay. I wasn't mad at you. Okay. I, I spent like two or three hours just being like, who the fuck are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah, I've had both of your experiences. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, so I, I don't know when this thing is actually. So I made a. a, a a uh, what do you call it? like a video essay style documentary? It's eighty five minutes long. It's going to be posted on Faith Life TV sometime soon. It's called Real Redemption R E E L. That's like the fifth title we came up with, and it wasn't mine. Um, <laughs> Didn't sound like yours. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, no. So you, you know what? I might have thrown it out with like thirty possible titles, and it's not the one I sure was shooting. You're for. like Don Draper throwing out. Cure for the common breakfast. <laughs> exactly. And then yeah, they yeah. actually and latch on yeah. to the one. Um, but uh, I'm fairly proud of it. And they are doing some really good stuff with like the titles and all that. And uh, this is one where, and it's all about the churches, the, like whether it be Catholic or, or Protestant, like the church's uh, relationship to Hollywood in, since like the 1920s to present uh, culminating in, the creation of Christian film and how that has evolved in the last 20 years, that kind of thing. I've watched it a few times. I'm fairly proud of it. We're going to be sending out, sending it out to various critics, Christian and otherwise. It is primarily for a Christian audience that is only now starting to uh, get into movies. And thus it's only, it only goes so deep. And 
the minute we the minute we started like putting together a list of like critics to send it out to, I was like, here we go, <laughs> and it's like this is. It's like, I know the audience I intended it for, and it's not necessarily them, but I still want, right. I still want reviews for it. And so I'm just, I, I just worry that people are going to watch it and be like, wow, this is really shallow. This guy, Tyler Smith, the Battleship Pretension, uh, which is a big part of the press materials, by the way. Um, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he's uh, just a big old fraud. They probably won't say that in their review, but they'll think it. Okay. And so <laughs> you're so, sure. I'm a hundred percent positive. Um, and so it's really just, uh, that's kind of where I am right now. Like with this show, with teaching and with a, a documentary about movies coming out soon. Uh, it's just kind of where I am right now. And I try to fight it. And I do think that in my experience, the best thing to do, and this is something I've talked about before and something that you just mentioned that like, it's when like you, I feel that when all these other voices come into the play right and that it's fine to listen to other people and they can really get you thinking about stuff that you hadn't thought about before but like if you just focus on the movie itself and your reaction to it this is what i'm saying like yeah when i'm writing or when i'm on the podcast talking i'm suddenly once i'm i'll I'll when you're doing the work yeah i'll find my way to uh what i needed to say in fact did you do you know the story i was going to is it holy motors about holy motors yeah. where you were in this trunk like because you didn't like it and everyone we knew liked it and well, I, I, d- I did like it but i wondered i didn't know if i liked it enough oh, okay. <laughs> i re- really got me and so you were talking about that and so i just this was off mic and I, this was not a this is one of our rare uh yeah. not on the microphone conversations 2 a.m i and, called you in a <laughs> fluster right and so i just said well what did you think of the movie and then once we started talking about it you were fine yeah so yeah i i go through the same thing i questioned myself when I'm in my head. Yeah. Uh, um, and then I start finding my way, uh, my, my way to it. I've started using, I mentioned, uh, to you guys before we started recording that I've been swimming for exercise. I might've met mm-hmm. the, mentioned yeah. this on the podcast before. And oddly enough, just this morning, cause my wife goes to the same gym and so on her way out, she like looked in the pool, like, and saw me, you know? And she, and so she was like, cause she's she like, who is that? Michael Phelps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So obviously when she works out, she's like on the treadmill reading a magazine or she's got earphones in, you know, tweakedaudio.com earbuds or whatever. Um, and then, so she asked me like, uh, like, what do you think about? She was like, I think she, and and it's, I I really, and I was like, I mostly just think about movies. Like I was this morning, I was thinking like, uh, here's something I'm going to be talking about the movies I saw at AFI fest. Here's some things that I want to make sure that I point out. That's what I was thinking when I was swimming. And she was like, so disappointed she was like i thought it was going to be like a zen like you got into a meditative state and i was i was like in a way Close yeah enough. that's yeah. kind of what it is but um uh yeah when i'm in a place either because i'm writing because i'm talking or i guess because i'm swimming and i'm in my head where mm-hmm. i can actually start putting my thoughts together yeah. all of that falls away it's mostly just while i'm watching the movie i get some anxiety about Am I doing this right? <laughs> it's weird. When I'm watching the movie, I don't feel that. I mean, well, some movies are just so bad that I can't help but be in my own head. But usually I'm able to kind of remove myself and just engage with the film itself. Once the movie is over, that's when it really starts, mm. especially if, if it's a critic screening and I overhear people oh, sure. afterwards. Oh, and then that. I'm like, oh. <laughs> that's when I really get to be like, fuck those guys. <laughs> yeah. And on Oh, yeah, that's, that's the weird thing is that the the people that I'm thinking of are not usually the critics no, around sure. me. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, um, 
there's only a handful of people whose opinions like I start where someone I'll read a review and someone will say like will like the things that I liked about the movie and then see something that I didn't see and I'll be like uh, like that reminds me of um Todd this is go- going to uh stand up comedy Todd Glass talking about seeing Brian Regan do like 40 minutes on buying a house mm-hmm. and Todd Glass was like I bought a house <laughs> I didn't get 40 minutes material out of it and like yeah. doing the same thing like questioning himself and so I will sometimes read a review and someone will say something someone will say something that is like so insightful and I'll be like, fuck, I saw the same movie this person saw. Right, yeah. How did I miss this? And that'll get inside my head. And so th- the next time I watch a movie, that person's voice will be inside my head. Hmm, uh, not their usual. I don't I'll always know what their actual voice sounds yeah. like, their writing <laughs> voice. Um, okay. Well, let's get into it. Uh, shall we? Um, but first, um, uh, Scott, the director's name is Michelle Franco. That's the who did after Lucia, which I highly recommend, but word of warning, it is, uh, some heavy shit. Yeah. Chronic is the Tim Roth That's one that everyone one. hated that I didn't see. And then the reason I wanted to point this out. Okay. April's daughter. Okay. Is the English language title. The Spanish language title is La Hijas de Abril, which is April's daughters. It's a, it's a total yeah. bicycle thief, bicycle oh, wow. thieves type, type of situation. I mean, I didn't and, see the movie. I don't know if he has more than one. April is a woman's name. Um, right. She, yes. She. Um, she does have two or more. I don't want to give too much away about the movie. It's, it's it. kind of a cool movie. Um, so I, yeah, I wonder why they decided to call it April's daughter singular for the hmm. U.S. Well, release. you said you don't want to give it too much away. Maybe they didn't want to either. I guess so. I guess so. All right. Um, let's get into it, shall we? We're going to talk about what we saw at this year's at, at the 2019 AFI Film Festival presented by Audi. Um, which is the official name of the film festival. They didn't push it as hard this year, maybe because of the no free tickets in the press materials. They didn't, yeah. but every programmer who introduced a film said, welcome to 20, uh, AFI Fest 2019 presented by Audi. You saw different programmers. Then. Oh, really? No, Cause <laughs> yeah. I, I took note of it. Okay. Um, that they, they all, they all said that. Um, so, uh, yes, we, we, we've talked, um, I think on the podcast before about the, the uh the changes to the tickets I yeah. you were on an episode we talked about yeah. how there's no longer free tickets um what was your experience of the festival this year very positive yeah uh i mean i'd been in favor of charging for tickets for years for the exact reason to have the effect that i predicted would happen and which did happen this year which is that there's just fewer people and it's much easier to manage the crowds and much easier to get into screenings and it was very pleasant and relaxing which i don't feel like happens with any festival least of all afi which is always chaos for yeah. a week and a half but don't you worry that like uh, like i understand in the here and now like yeah it's nice i barely waited in a line yeah at all this entire time there was one i think for jellicatu when i uh, had to wait and even then it was like i waited in less than five minutes yeah instead of uh, an hour or whatever uh, yeah um I don't even know what they were doing. The like cue cards where you oh, yeah. get a place in line and they have, were, but it didn't really play. Yeah. No, yeah. It, so in the moment I'm like, yes, this is way smoother, way more enjoyable, but then don't you start to work worry? Like is the festival solvent? Like, yeah, it, I know, but it's like, that's a future problem. Uh, <laughs> I try to live in the now, David. And the now is very pleasant and very relaxing. Um, Tyler's giving up on the podcast. <clears throat> no, he's just going to make a phone call. Uh, yeah, I no, realized that my phone was on so that I could hear notifications uh, from you guys, and I forgot to turn it off. Oh, okay. Sure. Um, um, yeah, but I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I uh, know I didn't go, because of the paying for tickets, the, um, the galas. 
Sure. In the Chinese theater. They're like 20 bucks or something. 25? Uh, it, I don't know. I didn't go to, uh, I, I tried to get a ticket for Richard Jewell and it was sold out by the okay. time because there's another, so the morning tickets went on sale. This is not AFI's first AFI Fest's fault, but I got stuck in fire traffic. And so by the time I got to work where I was <laughs> sure. going to furtively jump online and buy yeah. AFI tickets, like so much shit was of the big shit like that was sold out. So I didn't get into Richard Jewell. Um, yeah, I mean, the press pass never got us into galas, so I always just skip those in general. So, oh, okay, because when they were because they used to be free like everything else, right? Uh, and so last year I saw Widows and I saw Bird Box, um, and I know I've seen stuff in the in the past, um, but um, I forgot what I was going to say. Cool. Uh, something about the 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 theaters. Anyway, I I, I stuck about Scott's shoes. Uh, no, I already already covered okay. that. So I stuck to the Chinese six. They didn't have any programming at the Egyptian this year. I know. Is that but right? Honestly, like that was another part that was nice. It was just like I just went to the Chinese six and I just stayed there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I. Uh, you know I love Hollywood and Highland. I do too. Of, because of Cabo Wabo, of course. <laughs> sure. I spent a lot of time wrote most of my reviews. Uh, in fact, everything that I've posted so far, I reviewed <laughs> at the bar from, at, at Cabo location. Wabo. So you'll yeah. probably Wabo. listeners, you'll probably be able to tell yeah, for sure. the order in which he wrote the <laughs> reviews because because they'll just get progressively like run on sentences, oh, yeah. typos. <laughs> um, anyway, about his day. Uh, nacho filled perhaps <laughs> so yeah um overall more positive experience with the festival yeah let's get into the movies sure and we're gonna go alphabetically and we're gonna talk so a lot of these are things that you and i have seen set like outside of the fest yeah, or a number there's of only them? like three for me that i saw outside of the fest okay i've got i've got a few including how many, one. how many movies do we have each by the way well here's the total list of all the movies um good guy i think i have like 14, which is fewer than last year, which was another part. They just showed fewer movies this year. Okay. Um, so like scheduling was a breeze. Well, I was just like looked at each slot. I was like, that's the one movie I want to see in the slot settled. Yeah. I was kind of, the one thing I was disappointed in, we'll get to it a little bit is that I've always, I've always liked to make room for the like repertory program at AFI Fest. Sure. But they only had the, they only Alan had Pakula? three Alan. How do you say his name? I said Pakula, but it might be Pacula. I like to say Pacula because I think of Dracula. <laughs> Um, and I think sure. Dracula is cool. <laughs> I, I want to direct a movie. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, they only had three and also they were like weekday afternoon screen. Sure. Whereas in the past, you know, they did, they had robust, like I think two, it's always varied. Like the Robert Altman year was kind of the biggest year. They had like 13 that year. They had a bunch of Robert Altman and other, cause yeah, I yeah. also, in addition to like the, yeah, the Robert Altman movies they were showing. I also saw the Titty Cut Follies, and right. I saw um, um, with uh, Julie, friend of the show and wife of our guest, uh, saw a Mexican movie from the late '60s right. called The Outsiders. Yeah. It's called The Outsiders, but it's not based on right. the Theosy Hinton thing. It's a different thing. That didn't um, exist yet. I don't think. Uh, what's that? I don't think Probably the wouldn't have existed yeah. yet. Yeah, uh, that was really really good. Um, Anyway, uh, and then last year they, uh, I saw uh, Nitrate Kisses with you, right. and I saw Queen of Diamonds, which was amazing, oh, yeah. it was a new restoration, and I saw uh, also a new, new restoration of the Juniper Tree, which is the yeah, movie that Bjork was Yeah, on Canopy. In. I've been meaning to watch it. Um, it's cool. Uh, right on. But um, so this year I, I, I saw more like new movies simply because... That's what was there. Yeah, there were very few old movies, and the ones that were playing were at times I couldn't make it yeah. anyway, uh, which is kind of a bummer for you know because i normally think when i go to most festivals like a sundance or a toronto yeah 
or when LA Film Festival existed, like um, they would sometimes do repertory programs, but I felt like, well, I have a press pass. I feel like my, my oh, sure. job here is to see the new stuff and review it and get reviews up on the website and stuff. And so AFI, because I'm just attending, like you're our press person. I'm just attending as an attendee. I would always try to cram in a bunch of the, the rep, rep stuff, but I couldn't do that at all this year. Yeah. I guess I just, because the rep stuff is always varied along with a lot of the other aspects of AFI, like just kind of take it as it comes, I guess. Well, I hope they bring it back. Uh, yeah, it'd be cool. I mean, we'll, I'm sure there will be more changes next year based on how ticketing went this year. Um, so we'll see. Okay, well, let's talk about the actual movies. Yeah. We'll, we'll start with one. We're not going to go too deep into it because I know you didn't see it at the festival because you and I saw it together. Right. The and Aeronauts. We both didn't like it. We both didn't like <laughs> it. I've already talked about it in the movie journal. Didn't care for the Aeronauts. Right. Um, but it was the first movie in the festival bumper. That's uh, right. <laughs> so I, I had mean, to it's relive a, every time. It's the part where the butterflies are flying at like however high balloons fly. I guess that's so pretty it's pretty cool. cool visual. Yeah. And I think the balloon cool. stuff in the movie is pretty sweet. I know you like hated every aspect of it, but uh, you know, you get some people up uh, and like, I, I can't remember how high they track the balloon height through the entire movie. And yet I can't remember. No, I can't remember at all. Either. But, um, no, I like the first scene. I like right. the part before the balloon takes off, but then you get the part where the balloons frozen. It's just to climb up the side of the balloon and like punch the thing to get the airflow. And that's pretty sweet. No, that is, <laughs> that sounds like a neat sequence. It is a neat sequence. No, it's the kind of just like empty manufactured, sort of like we need a thrilling part here uh, like uh, I, sure at no point did i worry that she was in any danger i think well no but it's still fun to watch i didn't think so <laughs> <laughs> all right so that's the aeronauts speaking of elevation yeah the next movie on the list i didn't see it's called Anne at Thirteen Thousand feet this is probably the number one movie that played the festival outside of galas that i wanted to see that i missed well fortunately for you it's coming next year from cinema guild so it's LA. You probably won't get a chance to see it, but if you request a screening link, Cinema I'll send it to means you. I'll get a link. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Look, this is the future. Look, all the theaters are going to be owned by the studios by this time next year. And all, yeah. and all independent movies are going to have to be seen on, they uh, just online. announced the uh, music calls closing in Beverly Hills, which I is know. a real loss, which I've been going to for, I mean, how long have I been out here? 14 years. Yeah, I've been going it's a to. great theater. And for, selfish reasons it's a theater i could walk to for my right, job yeah so i used to go there uh, after work sometimes anyway they were the kind of theater that would play like cinema guild stuff yeah. so it's was on my mind that was um, Lemley, though right yeah and isn't lemley for sale in general theoretically okay unclear yeah okay uh, so anyway, and at thirteen thousand yes. feet uh so this is a canadian film it's the third film by this guy Kazik Radwanski I'll say uh, and it's about a young woman who has an unspecified sort of uh, woman under the influence-esque mental illness um, she's recently I don't know been released or out on her own cognizance for the first time she has her own apartment for the first time and is uh, working at a kind of I guess in Canada they just have obviously like great things like free daycare. So she's working on one of those free daycares where people just dump their kids all day. And she gets along really well with the kids, but struggles with the administrative stuff. And it's kind of slowly her, uh, breakdown over the course of the film. And the title comes from the fact that she has recently discovered a love of skydiving and is working towards, uh, going out on her own for skydiving and for an independent film to do its own skydiving sequence is pretty damn cool. Yeah. Um, and it's a really, really solid film. Very riveting. Uh, it's only like 75 minutes, but it feels very expansive in that, like all the scenes seem to suggest much more than what's going on just within them. You get things about her relationship with her mother. Um, you feel that 
you know, she's constantly trying to break free of her mother's control while still relying on it in some ways and feel her desire to make this apartment work. It's in kind of a sketchy neighborhood. You feel her desire to make a relationship work with this new guy. Um, they meet in a very funny scene. They meet at uh, her friend's wedding and he's, he's one of the groomsmen. She's one of the bridesmaids, maybe even the maid of honor. And she's just making fun of him relentlessly for being a nerd about online gaming, <laughs> um, which is very funny to watch. And she just gets progressively drunker and drunker, which obviously doesn't help things with her illness, but they still get together and try to navigate things. And she gets too attached to that, gets too attached to her friends, gets too attached to some aspects of her job while ignoring others. And it's a really affecting look. I think it kind of the everyday reality of living with mental illness. Um, but I don't know. I always feel like it's maybe problematic that they don't specify in those cases. Maybe it feels like they're just like using it as a narrative trope. I don't know if you guys have ever felt this way. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> that it's just kind of this abstract thing that's like, but at the same time, it does get at like aspects of everyday life that people experience even without mental illness of feeling like vulnerable and uh, kind of ill at ease with the world. So, I don't know. I, I feel like there's still space for it, but I do f- feel like there's potentially a problematic angle on it. Hmm. Tyler, you would see if I have. Just, yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously uh, the movie uh, Joker is kind of the latest one uh, right. to, to deal with that, where they He's make on it, seven pills, uh, though. Yeah, and he, whatever specificity there is to his mental illness, I think is a function of the performance, not necessarily sure. the writing. Um, and it's just one of those things where it can be, it can almost be a get out of jail free card where right. like the character isn't, can't really be held responsible for their actions. So like on one hand it can, you can make them into a monster or you can make them into a fun free spirit. Either way, they're not really approached as people. And again, I do think that Joaquin Phoenix humanizes the character quite a bit. Uh, but I also feel like it's just, I just feel like a lot of people don't know how to write any really yeah. any kind of mental illness because especially there are some mental illnesses that are more cinematic than others. Sure. Um, and to me, a movie like woman under the influence is one of the best because there, I think there's a specificity to just the way that she acts, the way she's written, the way she interacts with everybody else. The fact that people don't know how to deal with her. Right despite loving her, but they're also exasperated by her. I don't know. It's uh, it's just something that I think about a lot more uh, yeah. these days. I think this movie kind of hits on some of that. And the lead performance by Derek Campbell is really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's making specific choices as opposed to just like any choice. So up next is a movie that I already, that I saw right. at TIFF, uh, but you saw it here. And that's as a Toronto international film festival. That's yeah, the one. Okay. For those of us in the know, we just call it. TIFF. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> it's called Bakurao. It's a Brazilian film? Yeah. Uh, this is the, I think, third feature by Kleber Mendoza Filho, I'll say. Uh, is first co-directed with his frequent uh, production designer, Juliano Dornelis, uh, which for those who have seen his last film, Aquarius, will recognize the uh, role production design plays in his films, for sure. That film was about a woman trying to retain her apartment after a large corporation buys it and is trying to renovate it um, and is trying to kind of slowly edge her out. And in some ways, this movie is kind of the same story, right? <laughs> I had not thought about that. But yeah, this is a... Uh, I remember because this, I guess, premiered at Cannes this year, yeah. right? And there was a lot of talk about 
uh, how this was a big departure for Clay Bergman, Don't Sefila. And it, I mean, it's it. definitely a more genre-driven film. Yeah, and it's more um, heightened, I think. Yeah, like for sure. Uh, not that Aquarius doesn't have funny stuff in it. It does, but I think Baccarat is... It's a sort of almost... not. I don't think... Science fiction is, is like speculative fiction, satire. Right, because it takes a, place in the near future, I think yeah. it says. But, it, but there's not really any science in it. I guess, I guess there is a little bit with the... Anyway, we're getting Yeah, off. they have, uh, they have the also predictable uh, future smartphones that are just clear, which every yeah. movie <laughs> set in the near future has. Um, uh, but also it's a dark comedy. Right. Uh, sometimes a very dark comedy. Um, that, that So I think it's a departure. It seems like a departure from him in more than one way, but I never saw Neighboring South, Neither so I only I. have I heard the two was, movies to compare. Yeah, I heard that was more of kind of a thriller thing than Aquarius, okay. so I can see the connection there, but again, I didn't see it, so I couldn't say for sure, but this is very, like, exploitative violence, um, and I don't know, I, I think you give away the premise when you talk about it, but I'm kind of reticent too, because I'd forgotten what you said, and then watching the movie, I was like, oh, oh that's what this movie's about. Oh, okay, then, well, I guess we can I knew going in oh, what, okay. it, what it was about, um, but yeah, it is about a, uh, a very poor small town yeah. that sort of, uh, Beset by outsiders. Yeah. And I guess the, uh, the local government or maybe the national government has realized that keeping this town in business is more, uh, right. <laughs> it might be costing them more than, than right. they're getting out of it. And, uh, then, uh, yeah, I guess we don't want to give away what happens, but yeah, it becomes, it does get, dark satirical and violent uh, yeah but eventually also, very violent eventually very violent and uh i think at the same time uh the director keeps a good eye on the experiential nature of it because uh, the start of it is, it starts off pretty slow going it's just like the with this town going about their business there's a funeral at the start and mm-hmm. there the mayor comes to visit and just kind of like how the town is and then there's a flying ufo and it starts to kind of <laughs> set off <laughs> from right. there yeah. uh but he still keeps an eye i think on that kind of everyday nature and yeah. which yeah. then grounds the violence when it finally erupts in a very real way which is pretty yeah. cool and you've got a uh, udo kier yeah, who was at the screening, actually, yeah. and gave a very funny introduction that isn't worth quoting because it's only funny if it would appear in front of you sure. saying it. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. Uh, did you have something to say? No, go on. I thought you made a uh, I have something to say noise. Oh, no, no. Like, uh, I was uh, chuckling at Udo Q. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but I thought you were like Jerry Blank. I've got something to say. Oh, yeah, no. Um, I did steal a TV, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a user? A loser? Uh, what was it? A boozer? A user and a loser? Like that? Six time, uh, is that what it is? A six time loser? It's been so long. I, don't remember. I gotta watch yeah. all of the Strangers of the Candy again. What a great show. I was, when that show first aired, I was like almost turned off by how ugly it is. And Boy, now yeah. I love that about it. And also, did you see the movie Strangers of the Candy? I've never seen the movie. There's a, I don't remember if, if this is an aspect of the, uh, of the show, but you know how she has her like stepfather who's just like an asshole and also younger than her. Uh, <laughs> Or whatever it is. Anyway, there's a moment where they're all hanging out at home, and there's like a knock at the door, and he looks and he's like, "Now who could that be?" <laughs> and and it's like, "Do you know who it is?" And basically, they spend like a minute and a half talking about how they're not expecting anyone. <laughs> so who on earth earth could it be? And they're just getting angrier and angrier at the notion that there's somebody at the door. And I love it. All right. Um, next, I will give Scott a, br- a break and talk about uh, a film called Balloon. Um, which takes place in 
Tibet and is um, about a family who have uh, um, three kids and um, can't really afford another. Mm-hmm. Both, literally, they can't afford to uh, take care of another kid, and also they can't afford the fine that they'll get for right. having another child. Um, and so the the it's a very you know it's a it's a very uh, it's a serious drama. But the title balloon refers to condoms um, <laughs> because that's uh, uh, a big part of what it's about. Is it's, it's this rural, very religious family, um, and they're contending with having the, the idea of going into town and asking a doctor for condoms is like hmm. a huge undertaking. Um, it, so a, a lot of the movies about, um, this sort of, uh, uh, because it's not just the, sh- the shame of, um, asking for a condom, which every, you know, or not every, but a lot of 15 year old, 16 year old boys know mm-hmm. the, the, the awkwardness of asking for condoms. But, uh, if their neighbors find out, it could be, um, very embarrassing for them. Sure. It could, you know, the, uh, and, and so, um, yeah, uh, I wish it's, this is one I should have been thinking about while I was, uh, swimming this morning, uh, thinking about what to, what to say. Cause I haven't reviewed it yet and I'm still kind of, uh, struggling with it. Cause I don't think uh, at times I think, especially the ending feels a little bit too, uh, manufactured, but moment to moment, there's a lot of great character stuff, great, uh, uh, family stuff. There's some, some, some comedy in it. Um, uh, but also you see the, um, uh, the pain, the emotional, uh, sort of spiritual pain that they're, that they're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wish I, it sounds I, really good. Uh, yeah, it, I, I mean, I wish it were a little better, but it is, it is quite good. It's got some great, um, visuals cause there's also, um, there's like, there's one part where, uh, the, father decides to buy his two younger boys actual balloons not condoms but actual <laughs> balloons and so there's these great shots of him going from he's in town he buys the balloons he ties them to his motorcycle and he's driving through the countryside oh. to their rural home with these like big red balloons like uh you know fluttering behind him as he's driving the the, the motorcycle to the countryside there's a lot of but did they ever freeze uh, and then they gotta like you know shatter the ice and it's a big suspenseful moment uh no this is the, this is the better <laughs> balloon movie got it okay um although this is also there's also a short film that played AFI Fest called Balloon. Um, I didn't see that. Uh, There's a cultural moment being uh, hit upon, and I'm trying to figure out what it might be. Yeah. Do you ever feel bad for not going to the shorts programs? At, at every festival I've ever been to, I feel bad yeah, for that. Yeah, same. Yeah. Because I like short films, yeah. but I also feel like... I went once at AFI, and ever since then, I just haven't found the time. Well, I, do. I mean, sometimes... Uh, AFI... Uh, or... Uh, AFI definitely used to, and every once in a while you'll be at a festival screen, there'll be a short that proceeds and i feel like i like that Uh, that's how i saw um this must have been three years ago uh the short thunder road which became a feature which i didn't see but i love the short um and that just happened to be playing before donald cried which was a um uh, a fun movie um uh i do wonder though not that i've ever been in this necessarily this position but doing what you guys do which is to say you write about movies and all that it's gonna it's hard enough to like talk about movies that you know the vast majority of your readers may not be able to see ever anyway 
much less. And it's like, and if it's a short film, it's a damn, it's damn near a guarantee that they're not going to be able to see it. And so you just, I, if I were in your position, part of me would be like, it's not about, it's not about wasting time because personally it's never a waste of time, but you're there for professional reasons and it would, it could be seen as a waste of time and effort. I think it's also that like you get a certain like onslaught of experiences that it's like, yeah, they're short, but you're still watching a ton in a row that you have to digest and think about and like, but there just keeps coming one after the other. And it's usually like five or six in a program. Yeah. So it can be a lot to kind of take in, I guess. Yeah. Um, the last thing I was, I, I'm, I'm glad you guys gave me a second to consult my notes that I took during the screening <laughs> of Bloom. Cause the last thing I wanted to mention is that there's a number of, uh, there are some other sort of, um, metaphorical things going on, uh, while this family is struggling with whether or not to have another children, which is that, uh, their job, their farm is they, they breed sheep. And so there's all this, uh, uh, there's constantly, Sheep procreation stuff. but there's also constantly procreation going on oh, sure. and the idea of like one sheep who turns out is barren is no longer worth anything to them is sure. anything but like food to, or whatever um and then there's also these are people who are who believe in reincarnation um it's that's that's something just sort of plunging you into another religious way of thinking where reincarnation is just like a thing that's taken for granted like mm-hmm. of oh, course yeah. um and so and there's an older member of their family who is dying and so there's this implication that like if we have another kid we could like keep this soul mm. in the family in in a way um yeah i love that show soul in the family uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh all right what's next uh well Side note, did you guys ever see the uh, Seth MacFarlane movie, uh, Million Ways to Die in the West? No. Um, so it's fine. But there's this one great joke where he's about to have like a showdown with like the town tough and somehow it gets like called off. And he's like, Seth MacFarlane, who's a sheep farmer, is like, that's fine. I got sheep stuff to do anyway. <laughs> I think about that line all the time. Uh, all right. Next is Beanpole, uh, which I was really looking forward to. It won the top prize at the Uncertain Regard section of the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, is the second film by an up-and-coming Russian director. It's a World War II setting. It's got all going for it, and I thought it was okay. Um, Do you know that you ruined the Rotten Tomato score today? Oh, did you mark my review as rotten? I didn't even... Uh, I marked it as rotten. It was, I think probably the right it was 100% yeah. fresh. And I was reading oh, your get whole... get ready for those tweets. People are going to yeah, be pissed the, about the beanpole bean crowd is going <laughs> to come for me. Uh, here's, what I was, here's what I did. I was reading your whole review trying to figure out fresh or rotten. I was like on the fence. The last... The last paragraph kind of pushed me over into, sure. into rotten. But what I did and what I often do, I hope you're okay with this. Something I will do when I'm on the fence about a movie is I'll mark it, rot, say rotten. Yeah. But then my pull quote will be something kind of nice about yeah, it. I like that. And, or I'll do the opposite. I'll sure. mark something fresh. But if I have, I'll make sure to put my reservations about it in the, yeah. in the quote. So I, yeah, I'm, yeah, on, on your behalf, I marked it rotten. Hey, but I appreciate put a, it. No, put a kind of positive, kind of positive. I couldn't remember if you were submitting these reviews to Rotten Tomatoes, so I wasn't sure. And then I was like, where did I even mark this one? And yeah. uh, I think ultimately I would have come down the same way that you did. So good call. Okay. I, I, <laughs> I didn't see the movie, though. I just right, yeah. know your review. I do feel like there's this, because I've had to submit like some of my reviews, and there are plenty of movies that I'm on the fence about. And so I'm like, well, there's a lot I liked about it. I mean, honestly, the the big one is Toy Story 4. Right. Like, there's stuff I liked about it. I laughed a lot. And then I was like, but to me, that's 
all the more reason why it's rotten is that sure. how can I have this pleasant of an experience and still come away with a mixed feeling about it? Like, yeah, that's a good call. Um, so I usually err. So in that in a situation like that, I err on the side of negativity. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I yeah, that definitely uh, clarifies my feeling about this film, which um, is very impressive in many regards and has a lot going for it. It starts out. Uh, we're introduced to this woman, a uh, very tall woman who is nicknamed Beanpole for obvious reasons. She's very tall. Um, whose real name is Ia. And she's kind of just like frozen in place. And we come to learn that she was more directly involved in like direct combat. Obviously, being a woman in 1940s Russia, she wasn't you know on the front lines, but she was by the front lines and experiencing a lot of the violence and the death that goes along <laughs> with that. And so that experience has left her shaken. And she gets in these periodic fits where she just freezes up. She can hardly breathe, but she recognizes her pretty routine. Her coworkers seem to too. She works at this hospital treating uh, veterans of the war and she does really well at her job. She seems to get along well with everybody and the patients like her, the doctors like her, all that stuff. And she has a young son at home who she's taken care of and loves and she seems to have a good relationship with. And then one day while they're playing, she starts to have one of her fits while she's on top of him and the kid sure enough suffocates and dies. Uh, to make matters worse, it's not actually her son, but a boy who is posing as her son on behalf of her friend who was still on the front lines. Um, Ia got sent home because she was having these fits. She wasn't fit for combat or to be near combat, but her friend kept serving because when you're poor in Russia and don't have a lot of options, it's a pretty good gig. Uh, so her friend comes back from the war now that the war is over and expects to see her son who isn't there. Uh, Ia kind of lies and kind of sidesteps, but her friend doesn't seem that bothered by it. She just wants, you know, I mean, it is within the context, it is post-war. A lot of people were dying and the expectancy for life to go on is pretty low. Um, So you can see why she's not, you know, as broken up as I think a lot of us would be now. But she's mostly just focused on getting that back and having another kid and finding a husband and settling down and developing life for herself. And, but it isn't really clear, I think, at first, especially what Ia wants. And I don't think she even knows what she wants. And a lot of the film is following these two trajectories of uh, her friend Masha trying to seek out and claim what she definitely wants, and Ia trying to figure out what she does want. And this way that uh, the director, uh, Kondomir Bologov, explores that is occasionally incredibly inspired. There's this, there's this amazing scene where Masha is trying on a dress that one of their neighbors, who's a uh, tailor, is fixing up. And she tries this dress. It's clearly like the first piece of nice clothing she's ever worn in her life. And she's taking so much joy, but also pain in knowing that she'll never wear something nice like that again. Uh, that's an amazing scene and representative, I think, of the kind of inspiration he's going for and that he occasionally attains. But it's only on, if we're on a scene-to-scene basis. He doesn't really build anything conclusive and doesn't really have a lot of insight into the period. And I didn't know this going in, but I wasn't surprised to learn that it was, the director's only 28 and has, I think, a lot of the inhibitions of a 28-year-old where he has a lot of visual and scene ideas, but not a lot of... Uh, ways to shape that into a whole picture and sometimes the scenes seem too eager to impress or too eager to please the audience especially towards the end where Masha starts telling off rich families and just like having these grand speeches that mm. feel ill-suited to the character um, and so it's, the film really called the mind uh, Cold War from last year in its period setting and that film had tremendous insight into the way that the war and the times and the country that people were in shaped the way they thought here the story could take place just about anywhere 
and there doesn't seem to be very much unique to the setting beyond the aesthetics, which are pretty impressive. Um, Does it is it a situation you think where maybe because of the director's youth, um, not to imply that this is unique to young people, sure. but essentially looking back on Cold War Soviet Russia with a modern sensibility, not being able to necessarily transport yourself empathetically to like what it would actually be like, but instead like sort of impressionistically creating this story, but not really trying to transport anybody there. Yeah, I mean, I think he is empathetic for sure, but almost to a fault where he's not seeing the ways that they would think differently than him okay, yeah. or the way they mm-hmm. think differently from anyone today. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some stuff I think you could say about the way the characters come to realize what they want out of life that they would realize more quickly today because the options, especially for women, have expanded greatly. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's not enough to really justify the setting. And I, I'm, I've grown increasingly cautious about period movies in general. And I think there's more commercial space for them. And I think they take on a greater immediate import. And I also think, just think it's easier. It's easier to conceptualize a firm version of the past, which is already past than it is to mm. conceptualize a firm vision of the present. And so if you're a director who has this like sense of a firm vision, it's more easy to transport that in the past. And I felt like that was kind of inhibiting the film in a lot of regards. Well, past and present is a great way to get into the next movie, which is a, a, a small town, neo-noir, called blow the man down that does take place in the modern day um and uh it's the kind of noir it's it's a subset of noir that i like to think of as hide the body movies where someone someone kills someone else either accidentally or maybe in self-defense or something and then their the movie the the plot gets kicked off by we have to cover this up and hide the body and get away from it and so uh it 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 opens uh, it's in this small uh coastal main uh town um, and the two, the, the two girls, Sophie Lowe and Morgan sailor, uh, from everyone knows her from Homeland, everyone. uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, are, are the daughters. So it starts the day of, of their, um, mother's mother's funeral. And then that night, Morgan sailor's character, uh, who's the more rebellious one, uh, decides to go out and get drunk. She meets this sort of creepo guy at the bar, leaves in his car with him. Things get out of hand and, as you would imagine happens in such a situation, she ends up uh, putting a harpoon through his throat. Of course. So, uh, uh, he dies. And then so that, uh, so the, then the, the movie becomes about them covering up this death, but then it being, a, 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 or at least aspiring to be a sort of Coen brothers style twisty noir, mm-hmm. the disappearance of this one particular scumbag ends up, uh, uncovering a lot of the uh, long-standing criminal underground of this yeah. uh, of this world, it's and it's a better. I, I love that kind of thing, and I, so do I. But I feel like when all is said and done, the story is not actually as complicated as the movie is 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 making it out to be. It sure. seems kind of forced in that way. Sure, um, and so there, there there are times when I, when I when I. When I uh, felt taken out of it a, a little bit, but I do think, you know, we did an episode a while somewhat recently, Tyler about, uh, being harder on new movies than old movies. Yeah. I'll bet in a year, if someone mentions this movie to me, I'll be like, Oh yeah. Like I'll probably right, think sure. pretty positively of it right now. I'm thinking more about the stuff that didn't work. Uh, but what I, uh, the other thing that I really flashed onto about it is that it is, while it's all these other things, it is also a movie about, uh, I mean, I do think it's a feminist movie, but it's also a movie that it's about 
generational feminism and mm-hmm. the way that you've got these two the the two main characters are women in their twenties, and then you've got a, a a whole slew or I guess four uh, character actresses playing the sort of old guard of the women in this town who have like run the town in one way or another from behind the scenes or from, you know, their domestic purchase. You've got Margaret Martindale. You've got June Squibb. You've got Marceline Hugo, whom I immediately recognized as Kathy Geis from 30 rock. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then you've got Annette O'Toole. Um, And, um, and you only kind of like this movie. Uh, I know there's so (laughs) much going on. There's so much going on that I like. It also has, um, a, uh, scenes are punctuated uh, and this is a thing that could really have failed if it didn't work but every once in a while you'll get a chorus of fishermen singing sea shanties like you'll see them like dump the body and the camera will like pan over and there's a guy and he's saying go down you blood red roses and like this all sounds fantastic yeah it's, it's, know, it's fun I, I wish it were better but like I said in a year I'll probably just remember the good stuff but um, uh yeah, so you've got the idea of like these these women seem one way, but you realize that like they've put up with the same thing young feminists are put up with, and had fewer options to deal with it in their time. And so it's uh, it does it feels like a movie saying, "Hey, young feminists, give the older generations a break." They yeah. uh, kind of had it harder than than you, but there's. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not talking myself into liking it even more. There's like, there's a, uh, I keep thinking about the one just really funny moment where you've got June Squibb, Marceline Hugo and Annette O'Toole sit around, sitting around a kitchen table and they're talking about some serious like criminal shit that's going on in the town. They're like deciding what they're going to do and look up and one of their, I think it's Marceline Hugo's husband is just standing in the doorway. Uh, oh yeah. They all have, um, thick main accents, which oh, certain Excellent. actors pull off better sure, than others. Sure. But this guy who his only line in the movie or his only scene in the movie has a couple lines but they're like oh what's going on and he goes i dropped my flock <laughs> and, they're, and they're like oh let me get you another one and like and then he goes back to watch football and they go back to talking about like you know uh prostitutes and pimps and stuff like that <laughs> um yeah so you've got uh, this great uh, great cast i also uh, i didn't mention uh, gail rankin uh who plays um the, she's on Glow, the wolf. Um, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I don't Sheila? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah Sheila. Um, yeah, she's fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I, I just talked myself into liking the movie more than <laughs> I right. thought I did. Time to call up Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Switch the rating. Uh, I actually didn't review that one. Uh, well, because I wasn't planning on reviewing it, because you initially I said know. you were planning to see it. It's festival, man. Things are always shaking. Yeah, They're that happens. Changing. That happens. Um, okay, we, uh, we're we an hour in, and we're still in the seas. So um, I'll real quick mention, they showed The Cave. I don't know what this, instead of repertory theaters, or repertory screenings, they showed <laughs> documentaries yeah. that had come out over the last month. <laughs> yeah. So they showed The Cave. We've already talked about it on the podcast. Uh, Citizen K, uh, I saw... The this year's Alex Gibney movie. Sure, um, I've kind of dismissed Alex Gibney. Not my thing. But I know I understand why you you say that because it's not. Despite the fact that he has, and I wrote about this in my review, more than any other documentarian, embraced drones. We're going to get some real, sure. some real big. I mean, production value and out saying of drones. more than any other documenter director is saying a lot yeah they love I, some drones but and this is what i said in uh, i said something, something like this in my review i don't remember exactly i don't because i might have been a couple margaritas in sure not really um <laughs> but like i feel like one of the defining 
images of this decade of documentaries will be the drone going up and over the Scientology building in going clear, which he uses, which he returns to multiple times in that movie. There's no denying the drone's uh, a useful tool. I'm uh, just saying like, no, and I'm not, I'm I not, can't remember the last documentary I watched that didn't have a drone shot. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm, and I'm not praising the use of that. Okay. I'm saying despite that, sure. His movies don't tend to be very cinematic. Right. But what I will say that I like about him in terms of other, because I also recently watched the documentary about the National Enquirer, Scandalous. Right. I didn't like it at all. Okay. Um, Alex, given you when he does these explainer docs, which is essentially what they right. are, um, I always feel like he's at least being, he's on the level with us. I don't feel like Alex Gibney yes. is lying. Like, he's not disingenuous. He's not lying to us. He's, he's, he's good in a journalistic sense. He is good at organizing and then relaying the information that he wants. Absolutely. To do and he's not putting his thumb on, this, on, the, on the scale so much. Um, but that said, it's not that cinematic but i right. i always leave an alex Gibney movie being like well i know that now i know about yeah that totally now. and i think that's just my reservation is that like i i just have this brain block where i don't go to the movies for the same reason i want to read articles and right. it's like i'd rather just read the article um uh yeah so that was, i should say who citizen k is citizen k is about um mikhail khodorovsky who is uh one of the richest men in Russia or was one of the richest men in Russia. He's now very rich, but is, uh, exiled because he is accused of, uh, of, of murder, of ordering a murder. Um, and the documentary would very much, uh, like you to know that his charges and his exile come from the fact that he is one of the few post Soviet oligarchs who has made an enemy of Vladimir Putin. Mm. Most of the people, the handful of people who that's another thing, the word oligarch is something that like, I feel like in the here in America has a negative connotation in Russia. That's right. just what they're called. Like, yeah. <laughs> these are the, like these are the like seven men who made billions of dollars after the Soviet Union collapsed while most other Russians went the opposite way for them. Yeah. But like they hold a lot of power and kind of the deal is we get to hang on to this money and power as long as we stay out of Vladimir Putin's way. And Mikhail Khodorkovsky is the only one who has uh, been vocally anti-Putin. But what I think Alex Gibney, he doesn't strike like he's honest with it, but I think Mikhail Khodorkovsky is a big participant in the documentary. I think, I think Alex Gibney likes him a little bit, sure, but he also makes it, or at least, uh, alludes to the idea that like this guy isn't some like cr- crusader for freedom. Right. He doesn't like Vladimir Putin because he feels like he can make more money with <laughs> without him. And also uh, this murder that he's accused of, he actually might have ordered it. <laughs> this isn't something that Vladimir Putin people like, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ginned, Ginned up. up. Yeah, yes. Sure. Uh, this might have actually happened that this small town mayor who was in the way, a uh, small town Siberian mayor who was in the way of uh, uh, Khodorkovsky's um, oil uh uh, business. Yeah. His, his murder seemed pretty suspicious and pretty beneficial <laughs> to Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it definitely, uh, interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, but yeah, you don't need to rush out to a theater. Does it? It's so a, it's a, you don't need movie, to yeah. rush out to the theater. No, good one. Good one. Um, and then, uh, clemency played, which I've already seen. Have you seen clemency yet? Nope. Seen a couple weeks. It's quite good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I mean, we talk about, um, I, this keeps coming up recently. Um, and I wanted to, to have Scott on for uh, an actual episode about this, but how our expectations for, of a movie affect. And so I knew that 
clemency. I was like, okay, this is a death penalty movie that's anti-death penalty. And I went in kind of expecting to agree with the movie, but maybe be a little like talked down to as often happens in sure. uh, issue advocacy uh, movies. But, um, that's not what this is at all. It's very much about this character. Alfred Woodard plays the warden of a prison. The movie, the movie starts with an execution, which we learn is the 12th one. She's overseed as, uh, as, as this, uh, overseed or seen as a warden. And then the rest of the movie takes place in the run up to what will, what will be her 13th. If the governor doesn't grant clemency and she's very uh, suspicious, uh, superstitious <laughs> is what um, I'm saying. Damn it. I, you know what? I, I heard superstitious. Okay. Uh, Aldous Hodge plays the, the, the prisoner who will be the 13th, uh, execution. Uh, and, uh, Wendell Pierce plays Alfred Woodard's, uh, um, uh, husband. And, uh, there's a couple, uh, Oh, Richard Schiff plays Aldous Hodge's lawyer. um, <laughs> Dennis Haskins of all people uh, plays the father of the man Elvis Hodges character is in prison for killing. Hmm. Um, and mostly the movie is like, uh, I think the movie does a better job of making a case against the death penalty just by seeing, just by showing us how, what this has done to Alfie Woodard, as opposed to having speeches, you know, uh, most of the speeches there's, there are constant protests, but most of them take place off. Like when she sits in her office at the prison, you can always hear protesters. And it's like a, uh, a nice little sort of experiential, like, uh, submer- you know, immersive type of choice. Um, and yeah, er- everything is, is relayed through this, this character and the, and the weight on her, on her soul. I do hope that she, because I know that she's getting like awards buzz. I hope she like really is in the running, just because I've liked Alfre Woodard for a long time, mm-hmm. and a role like this seems very uh, something that an actor can really like sink her teeth into. Um, not that it's like a, a a big like it's not like it's not over the top or anything like that, but like anguish and having to navigate various uh, people. I don't know. It just, right. I'm, I'm excited to see it. Let's say uh, on the count of three, let's say it. Cause I think we have the same answer. What's the first movie you remember Alfred Woodard from one, two, three Scrooged. Scrooged. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, next up is deer skin, which is a movie that I went to see because it's, 75 minutes long and I had a hole in my schedule. I've only seen one Quentin Depew movie before I saw wrong and I pretty much hated it. Um, and so I wasn't expecting much from deer skin. And again, expectations. I was pleasantly surprised. This, uh, deer skin is a movie in which, uh, Jean Dujardin, um, who is known for being very handsome. And, uh, I always, I don't know. I, I, I is it stupid? I, we, I feel like we all, the, the movie press or entertainment press always does is when someone who is traditionally very attractive mm-hmm. takes a role that makes them look stupid or right. messy or whatever. Um, we're like, Oh, good for them. You know? <laughs> uh, and so I had a little bit of that because he plays a, what we gather is a very recently divorced man who has taken the last of his money to buy a vintage deerskin, uh, jacket. Sure. Um, he's broke. He moves into a hotel he can't pay for in a small town. The only other possession he has is a video camera. And so he tell when the bartender played by portrait of a lady on fires, Adele Hanel, um, asks her what, ask him what, uh, um, what he does. He says he's a filmmaker, even though he knows nothing about <laughs> filmmaking. And, but then he, he, but he basically his entire life becomes about, this jacket, this jacket is the only thing that he cares about to the point where, um, it starts 
the jacket starts telling him to do things um, sure. <laughs> and to film them. Sounds like a Quentin Dupuis movie. Uh, yeah. And, and then, uh, so Adele Hanau's character is an aspiring editor. Um, <laughs> there's a, an amazing, amazingly funny scene that, uh, or a little moment that I'm going to give away here where she's, she's telling him, She's like, I'm not, you know, I just work on my own projects. I put Pulp Fiction back in order. And, he, and, he, and he's and he's like, oh. And she's like, well, you know, Pulp Fiction is out of order. I put it back in order and it really sucked. <laughs> um, so then he yeah starts filming him. So the jacket starts telling him to do more and more terrible things. He starts acquiring other deerskin clothing, hats and pants and gloves and stuff. Um and filming himself going out and doing terrible things and then giving the footage to Adele, uh, Hanel. And, um, yeah, the movie is, is funny, like genuinely funny in a way that wrong wasn't. So I don't know if I saw the wrong Quentin yeah. Depew movie. Did you see, uh, I believe we saw rubber together, right? No, I saw For, rubber by myself. Okay. I have seen rubber. Uh, yeah. And you have not, right? No. So I, I've pulled up the the first line. It's a bit of a monologue. <laughs> oh, we've talked about this on the show yeah. before. Yeah, yeah, I've never all, seen it. All of it where it's it just gets progressively more ridiculous. It starts out like a character is talking directly to the camera and says, "In the Steven Spielberg movie ET, why is the alien brown? No reason. In Love Story, why do the characters fall madly in love with each other? No reason. Okay." <laughs> In Oliver Stone's JFK, why is the president suddenly assassinated by some stranger? No reason. Like, just somebody it, getting philosophical about not being inquisitive at all yeah, uh, right. is something that I just really love. And so uh, I, it's the only film of his that I've seen. But every time I hear about one of his movies, it always sounds intriguing. Even yeah, something yeah, I mean, like Wrong sounded good to you me. You quoted the best part of the movie, though. That's the problem. Like, the rest uh, of the movie... Wingshauser saying, "Hey, wait! It's a tri- it turned into a tricycle. <laughs> that's pretty funny, and that's towards the end. I don't remember that, but okay. oh, it's good stuff. Right. Well, uh, I would recommend then going to ch- checking out Deerskin next if you get a chance, because I was pleasantly surprised by how the movie is about. Obviously, there's the base level of like, oh, this guy's just his life's turned upside down. He's put in all he's put all of himself into this ja- into this jacket, like John Wick with his dog, and that's just like the most superficial reading." Um, but, uh, there's also the sense uh, there's a, as he's putting together this entire deerskin outfit and going out and filming himself doing terrible things, you kind of realize like he's becoming, there's another movie to be made. That's like a slasher horror movie in which it's this crazed man in a deerskin who's dressed in deerskin who goes around killing people. <laughs> like he's becoming like iconographic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's just, uh, as someone who, uh, likes nice clothes i kind of did sure. like there was a certain germ of the beginning of it where i kind of like identified with him when he would just like take off the jacket in the hotel room and hang it very ne- neatly on the hook on the end of the chair and just like look at it i was like i get that but then <laughs> so that ni- this nice sweater that you're wearing today it hasn't told me to okay. <laughs> do anything terrible yet but uh yeah anyway uh, that's too much on we're, we're, we need to we need to move uh, along and uh, okay you want me to institute uh, institute no my, no no because uh, I, I really want to talk about uh i mean the theme of this is just expectations because i didn't really know anything about i didn't actually know anything about the friend gabriella copperthwaite's mm-hmm. the the friend i knew the friend i knew it was directed by gabriella copperthwaite whom i only knew as a documentarian because she made uh blackfish mm. and i knew it that it had jason siegel casey affleck and dakota johnson in it that's literally all i knew Sorry, guys, you don't get to stay uh, as unspoiled as I do, uh, because it turns out a lot of people knew what this is about. It's based on uh, an Esquire 
essay that some uh, this man named Matthew Teague, who's who K- Casey Affleck plays about um, a, a friend of him and his wife who moved in with them for the last year of his wife's life as she was dying of cancer. And so, um, uh, that's what the movie's about. Jason Siegel is just their like old friend who moves in with them and helps them through this terrible thing. And Dakota Johnson's character, you know, it's not a spoiler that she dies. We know from the beginning that she's dying, uh, she's about to die. Um, and, uh, I was incredibly moved by the movie, even though, if I were in your shoes right now and someone were telling me what this movie was about, I would not be intrigued. The cast be- intrigues me. The cast. Yeah. The cast is good. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I haven't forgotten that there, there are a lot of allegations out there about Casey Affleck that are pretty, uh, pretty credible. And so, uh, I kept thinking about that, uh, a, a lot, but he's good in the movie. I don't know what else, what else to say about yeah. it. Um, uh, but I'm not, uh, burying those things. Um, but anyway, the point is, it's a it, it's a, a a very humanistically ground levelly observed type of movie. It's not so often when you've got a story like this. It's based on a true story. You've got well, isn't this an inspiring true story? And that becomes the entire engine sure. of the of the movie. Mm-hmm. And what uh, Gabriel Copperthwaite and the the um, the screenwriter who adapted it, uh, his name is Brad Inglesby. Um, uh, what they, what they, what they do is that this isn't actually a movie of, that's sp- directly about. They use it as a Trojan horse to get into some other ideas, um, which tend to be very uh, things that I think about a lot. You know, um, the, the idea of there's there's a part in one of the early the movie jumps back and forth. Um, through time and there's a part very early on when they're all still young and Jason Siegel has a crush on, on this, on this girl who's Dakota Johnson's friend. And, um, the friend tells Dakota Johnson, like, I'm not really, I'm not into your friend Dane. I'm into this other guy who's kind of a douchebag or whatever, but she's like, but he's, he's really goal driven. And I, it's like, in the, in the moment it's kind of a, like a, a throwaway line or maybe even a comedy line. Cause this guy is like a, a, just a total like douche bro or whatever. But I think the movie is getting into the idea of what we, what we think a successful person is, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, that we so often say like, uh, look what this person is made of their lives. They're successful in terms of the job they've achieved or the wealth they've acquired or, or, or the things they've checked off the list. Whereas Dane has none of that. He's, you know, by the end of the movie, he's still like in his thirties and still working just a retail, you know, mm-hmm. a, a retail job. Um, doesn't really have a, a place of his own anymore. And other characters kind of look down on him, but the movie is saying he's the best guy in the world. Like this is, uh, maybe it's our values that are, that are fucked up. If we look at someone like Dane and say, uh, what a loser. Um, and so I think burying that sort of observation, uh, in this kind of, you know, tearjerker. And it is, by the way, I'm, I mean, I'm an easy cry, so, uh, maybe I'm not someone to look at, but I was, yeah. uh, you I was need, bawling by the end. You don't really need your tears jerked. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Of, I, I cry yeah. real easy, but, uh, yeah. Um, uh, it is a very, very emotional movie, but, uh, yeah, moment by moment, just really acutely, uh, observed very, mostly very well acted. Um, 
and uh, yeah, I think I'm a Dakota Johnson fan. I don't, I don't know. I don't. I, great. I haven't seen her in that much, but I was. But she's really good in this. You still the, haven't seen Bad Times at the El Royale. No, right? I haven't seen she's that. She's quite good in that. Everybody's um, good in that. Although, I, because of the nature of this story and the source material, she's the least def- developed of the three characters because the essay was written and not subsequently the screenplay was written while those two, these two guys are still alive, uh, you know? So, um, but she does a, a great job. Anyway, I was really impressed, uh, by the friend. So I would definitely recommend checking it out. All right. What's next? Next up is the movie. I saw the last movie I saw, which is kind of a letdown is called Hala. Um, and it's, uh, um, I meant to look up something, uh, <laughs> but it, it's a, it's a, I guess a coming of age, uh, drama in a way, but it's very specifically about a, uh, Pakistani girl living in, uh, America. It never says what part of America, you know, that annoys me when it's like, this could be any town. Oh, yeah. yeah. I always hate that. Um, I'm always like trying to catch them. Like I'm like, I start <laughs> like, license I look plates. at license plates. <laughs> That's always what I do. Like, I'm like, where is, it? and then like, I feel like they went out of their way not to show us where it was, but someplace where the leaves change color and shit. So I don't <laughs> okay. know. I don't know. Um, and, uh, so she's, uh, yeah, she's coming of age. She's got a crush on a, on a boy who is not a Muslim boy. Um, and, uh, but she's a very good student. She's very close to her, to her dad, who is also a brainiac. Uh, you know, her mom is very strict, very religious, very disapproving, um, of the ways that she sort of is branching outside of the, the norms of the, that they brought over with them from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, minor spoilers, wouldn't you know it? Uh, the dad turns out to be not as great a guy as she thinks he is. Oops, and twist. the mother turns out to have more depth, uh, sure. than she gave her credit for. I, it, I don't know. I, like there's on the one hand, there's this, this specific, the specificity is like, okay, this is a version of this, like 16 candles type of like, or, you know, story, mm-hmm. uh, coming of age, uh, first love, um, you know, uh, generational dispute type of story that, that, uh, okay, I haven't seen this as much, but it's also very much just to sort of by the numbers, um, uh, coming of age. And it's also not, uh, it, it's, I, I, I guess I could see certain people getting into the movie's grooves, but I felt like uh, it felt listless to me um, as opposed to what I think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be poetic or elegiac or something, but I just thought it was slow and boring okay. um, in a lot of ways. Um, and it also reminded me, I'm trying to think this was last year. Um, there was a Norwegian movie that was a, but the same thing, except it took a much harder turn where the Pakistani girl's parents send her to live with family in Pakistan. Hmm. Um, uh, man, what, um, Norwegian. Oh, wow. A lot of people have tried to look this up. I think, uh, what will people say is what it was called. Uh, it was two years ago, apparently. Um, and I find myself thinking about that movie because I, uh, uh, I, I feel like uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel a certain way about religion mm-hmm. and I understand that in the U S which is where I live, but most What's people up? feel a different way than I do. Mm-hmm. 
and so sometimes when a movie is about like strict religious parents, I'm like, I feel like this is an anti-religion movie, but it's not because the makers and probably most of the viewers Mm -hmm. are coming in with a baseline assumption of like, you know, I, you hear people say after the, um, uh, all this, the spotlight stuff, all the stuff came out about the Catholic sure. priest. Right. And you hear some people say like, how could anyone still be a Catholic? How could anyone still go to Catholic church and being raised Catholic? I'm like, well, they wouldn't, you don't understand this, that, that wouldn't affect that decision because it's not getting into that. There's no way that the behavior of these priests whom we are taught are human and therefore will sin mm-hmm. are going to, to, to poke a hole in the main reason that you're a Catholic who go to church. So I understand that, but sometimes I feel like the other, I feel like the, the person who's saying when I watch certain movies about like, uh, incredibly conservative to the point of being nearly like emotionally abusive parents. And it's coming from a place of, of religious morality. Um, I sometimes feel like, uh, why would anyone, why would anyone subscribe to this? Uh, which I know is not the point of the movie. And so I don't know if that, I don't know this. Uh, the, the, we've, we've, I've left the movie hollow behind now and just gotten into <laughs> my own uh, uh, thoughts about like, to what extent is it okay to assume that your audience feels the same way that you do about, it's the same thing in a very different way. Quentin Tarantino made once upon a time in Hollywood with the assumption that his audience knew, knew who Charlie Manson was, right. who Sharon Tate was yeah. and what happened between them. And a lot of young people don't know. Yeah. Almost uh, none of my students, they all saw it, yeah. but none of them knew yeah. any of that. Yeah. And, and so like, is it okay to make a movie where you don't actually show any, not, not any, uh, I'm not talking about Holland anymore, but is it okay to make a movie? Where you don't actually show any positive aspects of religion, but just assume my audience uh, if not believes in God, at least respects this belief in God. And so we, I don't have to explain that part of it. I think it's a, I think that's, that's the concern there is that like, if you show the negative aspects, but you're not trying to be overall negative about it, then I think you at least need to just tip your, just tip your cap a little bit towards something even vaguely positive um, and I will, I, 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 I want to make clear, I'm not specifically talking about Hala right. because by the end, I think Hala does actually, um, show, uh, um, from an unexpected source, uh, some po- posit that some people, these people get positive things from their, yeah. their, their beliefs. So anyway, it's, I mean, that's the thing is, but whether it be religion or anything else in the end, like you're making a movie, not in a self-indulgent way, but you're making a movie for you and you, and there's this, right. there has to be an assumption. Like I can't be, whether I either love or hate this idea, I can't be the only person like me. And if I try to, if I, if I compromise to, to accommodate people that aren't like me, well, most people aren't like yeah. me, but there are a lot of people like me and you're going to wind up, I would say over compromising and you're not going to be true to your original message or your original theme or vision or whatever you want to call it. So I would err on the side of let the chips fall where it be true to what I, you're going to do and let yeah. the chips fall where they may. I, and I think you're right. But I also think that 
the the uh, collateral damage of that is that there's going to be some people who just don't get it. Sure. Like with the Manson thing. Yeah. All right. I like that you keep complaining but we're gone too long and they introduce these huge wieldy topics <laughs> that we couldn't possibly get through an entire episode. But I mean, I isn't this, it out. Isn't this out. why we engage with art? Hey, like, it's, it's okay with me. Just don't complain yeah. when I start talking. That's all. Yeah. And uh, also, I have uh, never complained about you talking. Uh, I complain about me. myself talking times. too long. All right. If, you, if it's okay, I'll complain about both of you talking okay. and, and remind one of you that we still have a movie journal to do after this. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, uh, but get ready for some long-windedness because now we're up to a movie that we've all seen. Yeah. Oh, good. Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. We talked about it on the yeah. movie I journal recently. I talked about the movie journal. The only, the only one of us that hasn't talked about it on here is Scott. Scott, yeah, I mean, we your thoughts? We can certainly get into it at greater length for the uh, episode we do on my top ten because it, it will definitely be on there yeah um the few things i'll say about it at this point having seen it twice now and absolutely loving it which is predictable because i adore terrence malick um i on the full movie preview i expressed some reservation because uh it's an easy subject in some ways uh, there's a guy who lived in austria in 1940 he doesn't want to serve in the army and he refuses to swear in loath of loyalty to hitler which you would have to do in order to serve in the army if you don't swear in loyalty they're probably going to shoot you because that's you know what nazis do um that setup is very straightforward and in fact in my review i said it's kind of almost ready made for pure flicks uh because <laughs> he's so beholden to his christian faith that he cannot budge an inch uh but the thing that struck me most immediately in many regards about uh, the exceptional qualities of the movie is that Terrence Malick takes very seriously the decision and the pros and cons on both sides to such an extent that by the end of the movie, either decision he could make is completely valid because certainly uh, giving in in and the authorities give him many outs. Like, you know, he can serve in a medical unit. He can do these assistant roles. He doesn't have to be on the front lines of, you know, shooting people himself. Uh, so for him to take that role, it seems like by the end of the movie, Terrence Malick is saying that would be the right decision for him and his family. They would all be better off if he would just do this. Uh, but at the same time, Malick is recognizing that there is a societal benefit when someone refuses to give in. And we as a society are better off for having people who at some point in history have stood up and said no, even though, you know, we didn't hear about this guy's name until decades after he died, mm. even though all the authorities are right in the immediate uh, aftermath of his death, it didn't matter at all that he didn't give in. Uh, it is a good thing to have people like that in history. Uh, but Malik recognizes both sides. He, and uh, a friend of mine saw the movie and was like, you know, we didn't need all the scenes at the farm. We don't need to feel bad for a guy who didn't give in to Nazis. We're already on his side. But that's not the point. The point is seeing everything he's giving up. Yes. And we can recognize abstractly that's the thing for anybody, but to spend so much time invested in it, we really feel everything he's missing and especially by the time he goes off to prison and all the communications are just done in letters between him and his wife uh they're so affecting and most of the letters were taken directly from the letters they actually wrote mm. which makes it all the more so and the actors deliver them so well and he uh, august Steele's delivery kind of allows that his decision for him is very simple but in the fact that we see those letters juxtaposed with the scenes of his family life realize how complex it is and how much he's giving up and how much there is and it examples like that are why I really balk at the notion that Terrence Malick is just making pretty pictures for pretty pictures sake. Um, all of his images are really doing something very active and very direct. 
uh, partially just showing the toil of the work. And actually, I noticed the second viewing, the work grows more complex the more the story goes on. At first, it's very straightforward kind of farm work of like mm-hmm. mowing down crops, spreading seeds, wrangling animals. But gradually, like the machines start to hold up on them. The you know they're sewing and the threads get tangled. Like mm. all these simple tasks grow more and more complex the more their decisions grow complex. And none of that is directly dwelled upon, or there's no direct connection made in like a dialogue or anything. Yeah, but it helps express what the characters are going through. And for Malik. Uh, the way people behave is so reflective of who they are, which is again why he has this whole working method of like a free flowing camera and actors can move where they want so you use natural light so that they have this space because to him the way people behave and what they do is who they are and so this subject is especially I think pertinent to his type of cinema um, and beyond that I also want to note uh, early on in the film uh, Franz the protagonist is assisting an artist in a church um, and the artist says that, you know, people come to this church, they look at these images of these saints who gave up so much in the past, and they think that the, surely they would have made these same decisions, they would be like these saints, which is ironic, one, given the churchgoers are the same people who are giving it a Nazism or signing up for the army, and in some cases, like, very uh, emotionally expressing the ideals of Nazism, they're very much on the side, uh, so they're not only not giving they're not only giving in, they're like siding with the evil force. Um, but it's also an ironic reflection of the audience today watching this movie. You know, we can look at him and say, I think and for most of the movies, I think we would say, oh, surely we were done what Franz does. We wouldn't give in. We would stand up for what's right. We stand up for, you know, the minorities that are being persecuted. But by weighing the two decisions that Franz has so seriously, I think it really calls that all into direct reflection and like i said in my review that i just posted uh i can say for sure they seem to be making movies about me in 70 years <laughs> I, I would take the medical uh allowance you know in order to get away from being shot uh and I, this is one of the few movies that really made me seriously confront that i think most movies allow that kind of out because they make the decision very simple and uh terrence malick never does um yeah. So that's all I'll say for now. We can get yeah. into more in the top ten episode. Oh yeah, yeah. it's yeah. We've all seen it. It's probably in currently in all of our top tens of the year. I'm sure, very, um, very high up. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, it's and I will say in regards to like the the pure flicks yeah. comment, having seen a number of sure. of pure flicks movies, it, it really is the concept of anonymity, the idea of what's the point of being a martyr unless you're public about it, right? And all of these often, you know, fictionalized uh, Pure Flix movies, I won't say all of them, but I'm <laughs> going to say all of them, uh, is that even if the case that's being argued is smaller, it quickly becomes bigger in the context of uh, the movie because it's all about taking a public stand. It's like, yeah, okay, fine, but what about... If it's literally just between you, your oppressor, and God, yeah, and, that's and the only person that sees it is God, what does that what does that mean? You know, like if God looking down on us, not to get too churchy about it, but the movie inspires it. Oh, for like, sure. If God looking down on us doesn't actually, it, I'll say me. If it doesn't keep me from being selfish and judgmental and sinning plenty myself, if that's not enough in just everyday situations, and it's like, okay, now there's a gun to your head. It's like, and nobody else is looking, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I will absolutely do whatever you need right. to do. And, and I don't, and it does force you to think in those terms. And I love that it's not totally clear that those are the terms we're thinking in until people start putting pressure on them and appealing to a certain type of pride, I would say. Um, 
and not necessarily even a bad pride, um, but just this idea of why are you standing on this? Do you think you're better than me? That's why that Bruno Gans scene yeah, works for sure. so well for me. Uh, yeah, it's a marvelous film. Sorry, we can move on. That's all right. Um, Scott, you put The Irishman on the list. Did that play the festival? It did. Uh, there was, the movie already came out. I know. They had a conversation with Martin Scorsese, and then they showed a three-and-a-half-hour movie. So I did hear some people online saying it was a long evening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't really have much to add about it because it feels like it's already been in the conversation yeah, for so many weeks, but it's a great movie. Uh, Ivana the Terrible. Yeah, so this is a uh, almost directly autobiographical film by a Romanian or Serbian-Romanian actress uh, named Ivana... Oh, boy. Uh, Mladenovic? I should have looked it up before I tried to pronounce it just now. Um, anyway, a young woman who is a Serbian-Romanian actress. She was actually in a movie I saw a couple years ago called Scarred Hearts. It's pretty great. Um, so she made this movie about, I guess, kind of a general emotional breakdown she had a couple of years ago, uh, starring herself and starring uh, many of the people who were there to experience that breakdown, including her family, uh, her former lovers, her friends, etc. It's a pretty good setup. There's some pretty good scenes. It falls into the trap that most of these types of movies do, where it feels like at a certain point, either these people would only put up with her ideas so much, or she would only ask so much of them. So there's these gaps that are sort of unattended to, where it feels like she can't quite piece the various aspects of the story together, and characters make reference to things as though we're all familiar with them. Obviously, they all are, but we aren't. And... I've had a hard time articulating this because usually I like when movies or TV shows let us fill in those gaps, but this doesn't feel like it acknowledged there were gaps. Um, mm. And it just seemed like there was just stuff cut out of the movie. Uh, most, I mean, egregious is the wrong word given the context, but most obvious of which is that one of her friends, who it turns out is this like massive Romanian pop star, um, died after the movie and the movie is dedicated to her. And there's this whole like, I had no idea about any of this, but then all of a sudden at the end, it turns out she had been dead for months by the time they finished the movie. And there's just all this stuff that just feels kind of unattended to and half developed. Um, you know, I like the urgency of it. I like the kind of very independent spirit of it, but it, uh, it doesn't have distribution right now and it probably won't because it's, it's a tough movie to latch onto in a lot of ways. Well, speaking of urgency, yeah, you and I saw an Indian film, uh, right? It's Indian. Yeah. Uh, called Jalakatu. Um, which is um, a movie about a uh, rural village where a buffalo gets loose. And uh, I would say hijinks ensue, but more sure. um, the like, like Stephen King need fill things style. The entire town's <laughs> history of internecine squabbles and resentments come up and the town, the village loses its mind specifically the men of the village lose their mind well they all start to like kind of compete over catching the buffalo right, only to right. as soon as they're confronted with the buffalo realize they're confronting a buffalo yeah. and run away from it uh i i hate these kind of like mashup comparison things but i i find myself describing the movie to people as uh if fellini made a herzog movie while on cocaine <laughs> oh, <laughs> because yeah the oh, choreography wow. and just outrageousness of the cast is so impressive uh it really made me think of like little javita and how he choreographs the photographers or some of his later movies which are more wild and expressive uh but then the direct like confrontation with nature obviously kind of from a herzog angle and then it's all like ramped up to like 11 and edited so fast uh the, yeah and it's i mean the bull is real like uh, it seems like in some shots because i mean there are so many shots where they're it's they're right so there. close to yeah. the head that bull uh or buffalo it, they, they call it a buffalo they call it a, yeah they call it a buffalo yeah 
Um, yeah, but even, even before that, that happens, the movie is, uh, just gets your, it, it just like, it clicks into place from the very opening, which is this, uh, uh, it has this like sort of lightly like percussive, yeah. but driving like, like, did you like, see, uh, um, but uh, sorry, the, the opening credits is a series of just shots of people's eyes, like opening in the yeah. morning or not opening. And it's, uh, it's, it's rhythmic and you get into the, uh, into the cadence uh, of it and it doesn't, it just keeps building and it doesn't let you go for what is it? 97 minutes. Or something yeah. Like actually uh, the director has made a lot of Bollywood movies that are like three hours long. This is oh, the first uh, one under two hours and let alone the first one's only like 90 minutes. Yeah. Uh, but Sorry, you were saying something before. Oh, just, did you see um, Let the Corpses Tan? Because yeah. the opening really reminded me of that, oh, actually. Oh, yeah. And now that you mentioned um, it, yeah. But it actually built on that, which I felt like Let the Corpses Tan really didn't. Oh, um, I love Let the Corpses Tan. Uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, this is, it. The I was impressed right away with even like the small number of people they have like running around the village and the way they like interact physically. But then it just get, like grows by dozens, and by the end it must be like hundreds of people on screen. Yeah, yeah, there are people, I... I uh, I remarked to you afterwards that I need to, I would need a flow yeah. chart to figure out who everyone is, where they're from and sure. what their problem is with each other. But I uh, couldn't track any of that. And I really didn't care because just watching them run through the screen, trying to one up each other and yeah. eventually piling on top of each other. And the way that he just moves the people with the flashlights and the uh, torches and stuff. Yeah. It's also aesthetically impressive. Yeah. There are a few storylines I think that, Stuck out, stuck out to me. There's the guys who come from the other town and are drunk and they have a Jeep. Uh, yeah. So they're they're trying to show off, like, we'll catch a buffalo for you. We're, right. we're from this other town. And there's the one guy who's actually very similar to a character in Bakurao, who's like kind of an outlaw, but he's going to come in and right. save the day. He's like the expert. And he, um, I, I think, wisely, given how many characters there are, he's in a very specifically colored shirt. Yeah. Uh, so I'm like, okay, I know who That's that guy out. is. Uh, yeah. Oh, speaking of their clothes, uh, I'm not sure where in India this is, but the men, they wear like collared shirts, but then just like wraps as, instead of pants. Yeah. And they're constantly like, it doesn't <laughs> seem very practical. They constantly well, seem to have running like, around all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so every scene, like every time they stop, all the men have to like undo <laughs> and redo their wraps. So, like it because I don't know if it's supposed to be funny to me or yeah. it's, it's just authentic, but, uh, it's amusing anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's coming to Amazon prime next year. I really hope that they do some kind of theatrical release for it though, because seeing it on the big screen was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, all right, they showed the Kingmaker, Lauren Greenfield's documentary, which came out uh, um, a few weeks ago. I, I liked that. Uh, we mentioned the the uh, Ellen J. Pacula uh, <laughs> movies. Uh, Clute, you guys have both seen Clute. Yeah. Uh, yeah, inst- yeah. Instead of uh, action, he would just go blah. <laughs> <laughs> and cut, of course. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like a low eye. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Know, I don't really have so much to say about it. It's never really been one of my favorites of the era. Okay. There are things that I really like about it. Um, yeah, certainly Jane Fonda's good. Yeah. Um, and I, and I like Donald Sutherland and I, I he's fine. I don't know. Why do you hate Donald Sutherland so much? <laughs> I just, I mean, part of it's just ridiculous that he's like this older guy who's, they keep like, everyone seems to accept that he's just like a hunk. <laughs> it's very strange. It's like, mm, there, are times, it. there are times where I'm like, is it just something about the seventies? Like yeah, if I lived totally. in the seventies, would, would I be envious yeah. <laughs> of Donald Sutherland? Um, but, uh, yeah. And I, I, I remember really liking and not just because of like the opening credits. I remember really liking the sound design. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of the conversation in some ways. Uh, and yeah, it's not as good as a conversation, but no, not yeah. at all. Um, but it's, it's a solid film, but I haven't seen it uh, yeah. in a while. Uh, all right. So Scott, you and I, 
have both seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire yeah. at the festival, right? True. Uh, I saw it at TIFF, which stands for the Toronto National Film Festival. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and you saw a press screening recently. Yeah, I saw the Sepulveda screening room. Um, I really, really love uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's uh, also probably in my top ten currently. It probably won't be in my top ten, but not for any fault of the film. I think it's really exceptional. and um, It has a very strong visual sense but it doesn't become beholden to that, which is always kind of the thing I'm looking out for with, with those movies that seem like screensaver movies, you know? That's like okay. a few shots in, I'm like, that's a perfect shot, that's a perfect shot. Uh-huh. But it's like, mm-hmm. when's it going to kind of break the pattern? I think especially towards the end, it starts to like catch you off guard in surprising ways and like takes these sudden cuts and... Well, here's a, uh, this is a little tease for something for a movie we're going to talk about uh, down the line. Okay. But uh, anytime there's a movie that isn't really a musical but then has kind of a musical number, I'm oh, like, sure. I think... I bet Scott liked that. It's a good start. <laughs> Portrait of Lady on Fire kind of has because it, it. Yeah, I uh, forgot about that. Though. Yeah, it, it it goes to some places I didn't expect this movie to 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 go to, uh, and that includes. It's more of a chant, but it is sure. like a performance, like a musical yeah. performance. That was uh, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I really liked it. Uh, I mean, you talked about not liking to make comparisons that seem too pat, and going in, I was like, like even while watching the movie, I was like, oh, people are just going to say it's like, oh, it's the female Call Me By Your Name, but it actually does have a lot in common with Call Me By Your Name. It does, but it, like the experience of watching is very different. Yeah, I mean, Call Me By Your Name is a much more like kind of passionately told and like expressive, mm. more directly so, and the camera's moving a lot more. This is kind of locked off and. Um, I was gonna. I was gonna say something. I immediately, uh, uh, and I'll still say it, but I don't know if it's true or if it just says more about me and what I uh, uh, find erotic. But sure. I was like, I was saying, there's, there's not, there's not really much more sex in Portrait of Lady on Fire than there is in Call Me by Your Name. But my first thing, my first thought was, but it feels sexier. But then I realized, like, I oh, say. it's because it's <laughs> because it's two women that I'm attracted to, yeah. and I'm not attracted to I the think two men. That probably has more to do. With it. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't say for sure. Um, but I, t- I talked about this with uh, uh, neither of you were on the TIFF wrap up episode, but. Um, I compared two movies I saw at TIFF, uh, Pablo Lorraine's Emma, which is a movie that is full of sex and not sexy at all. And then Portrait of Lady on Fire, which actually has very little sex in it, but is a very sexy movie. It's all about glances, man. Yeah. It's the way people look at each other. And uh, 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 strategically placed mirror in one of the uh, uh, one of the more memorable shots of the movie. And uh, strategically shot armpit that doesn't oh. look like an armpit at first. Yeah, that's, that, <laughs> yeah, that's going to go down in oh boy. one of the scenes of the year for sure. me, I think. Um, all right. So then, uh, okay. I didn't see Proxima. What is that? Yeah. So this is the new movie by, uh, Alice Winokur, uh, whose last movie disorder I didn't see, but whose movie before that Augustine, I really liked. And so I was curious about that, both because I like the movie and because this one's about a lady astronaut, which is always intriguing. Um, in this case, it's Eva green, which is even more intriguing. Oh, wow. Um, and it was actually shot in, I guess they call it star city. It's where like Russian astronauts train. Um, so it was shot like in the actual facility in which they train as Eva Green is preparing to go off to space. Uh, and the big struggle she's going through is that she's dreamed of sp- going to space all her life. This has been like her goal. It's been what she's working towards. We can see even just the beginning of the movie through her training, like how hard she's actively working at it even before she knows she's going to space. But then when she gets the news, she realizes that um, when she first like started out on this goal, she didn't have a daughter, which she now has. And now that the, uh, dream is becoming real. She's realizing the emotional impact of leaving behind her daughter, even in small parts, because obviously to go out to train, she can't be like coming home every day to take care of her daughter. So her daughter goes to stay with her ex-husband and she starts to grow more and more divorced from her daughter's everyday life. Um, 
So she starts to realize what it'll actually mean to be away in space for a year or so away from mm-hmm. watching her daughter kind of grow. <laughs> What's this? Does she board the Nostromo? Because <laughs> I see where we're headed here. Uh, no. Okay. Um, this is not science fiction, or, actually. Or does she get stranded for like separated from George Clooney? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, I did read an article that was kind of saying that like between those and especially gravity and um, also uh, Lucy in the sky, that there's kind of a trend towards not taking the most feminist attitude towards lady in space movies that always comes kind of back to like motherhood and like mm. kind of traditional notions. Oh, weird. um, which I think is, a, a we'll be talking about that fair, uh, very soon. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Uh, uh, right. There's another movie that is not a, actually about a woman who goes to space. You've lost me too much. Anyway. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know okay. what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was on a train of thought. You derailed me. And, uh, anyway, you were saying these movies are anti-feminist and that we, well, shouldn't, we shouldn't watch. Well, them. I interrupted. <laughs> uh, I had heard that charge leveled and, but I think in this case it's, um, expanding the definition, I think of modern feminism and especially the idea of what it means to be a career driven woman, because a lot of the struggles that Eva Green is coming up with are, um, struggles with just the way the space program is designed and the space program is designed by men. And so the fact that she doesn't necessarily fit into its structure isn't a fault of hers or like a fact that she's not quote unquote a strong woman. It's just, she has certain priorities and needs that the men in her program do not. Uh, there's another guy in the program played by Matt Dillon, who's been on a really good streak lately and is really good in this movie, um, who has two young kids himself but is pretty checked out of the whole like fatherhood thing. You know, I mean, he's a good father when he's there, but as soon as he's not, he starts compartmentalizing and he's in space mode. Um, so the fact that he's leaving kids behind, he doesn't care. He's going to space. Um, so just the fact that her daughter is a priority in her life. Isn't, I think a fault of her character. It's just a difference from the men that she's surrounded by. And mm. I think the movie's pretty wise about exploring that. And it especially helps to have a green at the center, who is an exceptional actress. And I think recently, even though she's very good in Tim Burton movies, it has kind of been relegated to being like, well, she's the one that makes Tim Burton movies good. Right. Um, but here she's playing a pretty grounded, uh, fairly quote unquote normal character. And she still brings that kind of like intensity and focus and the things she can do, which is like the way she looks at somebody twisting a certain scene around or still very much at the fore. Uh, I was really, really moved by this movie. It's too bad. It doesn't have U.S. distribution yet, but I hope it does. Um, because I think it's yeah. a pretty exceptional top I to hope bottom. I so too. Now, um, incidentally, not that I'm looking to be anti-feminist sure. or anything, but the vast majority about men working, if they have a family, it's all about how they should stop working as hard and value their family. Like, it seems like if there's any movie about a family person, like a, a father or mother, and they're, but they also have this job, it's going to advocate going back to their family and... Unless you're, unless it's a Damien Chazelle movie, <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> which is which is kind of risky in, yeah. in that yeah, way. Yeah, totally. Um, but I, the mo- this movie doesn't have to advocate for that because it's clear that this is a priority for her. Sure. Um, I see what you're saying, but I think it it comes out in different ways because maybe men in general, and but certainly the men in this movie aren't prioritizing their family. Right. Um, then there's a reason you would have to make movies like that for men, but yeah. movies for women. I mean, she, her career does stay important to her. It's not like she like gives up her dream of space instantly. As soon as she starts to miss her kid, it just presents a very real struggle for her. Right. All right. Tell us about the sleepwalkers. Yeah. So the sleepwalkers is an Argentine movie. Um, 
directed by a woman named Paula Hernandez, whose work I'm unfamiliar with, but apparently this is her fifth feature. Uh, it is called The Sleepwalkers because it's about a family, apparently uh, many members of which struggle with sleepwalking. In the opening scene, we see uh, this young girl who's maybe 13 or 14. Uh, her mother discovers her just standing naked in uh, their living room, at their living room window, just like staring into nothingness, sleepwalking. And it also corresponds with her having one of her first periods. Um, and it's very much, and it, soon after that, they go on a family vacation. Um, that they, it seems like this family goes on every year. The whole family gets together at this house, uh, and just one of those since where all the cousins get together, the grandparents, whatever. Um, but it's about that point in your life, uh, at least on the young person side, where you start to kind of break away from your family and start to want different things. And as much as like the teenage daughter does enjoy being on this vacation. She wants to start to define some space of her own. And on the flip side, it's very much about her mother uh, trying to hold on to her daughter and wanting to share in this part in her life where she's passing into womanhood, but totally unable to connect to her because the daughter is in this kind of push-pull phase. Um, and it just really, it, it seemed to latch on to a lot of the moments that I remembered, and which I largely don't think about in my own life when I was probably a little older than this character is, but wanting to like, be anywhere else but also still appreciating the tradition of the family vacation but still like wanting to be with friends or wanting to be apart or just not wanting to like be defined by family exclusively um and it goes into some really interesting directions some people felt like the ending got too uh intense and it certainly goes to some intense places um but i think they're all outgrowths of this emotional core of uh two people who are kind of desiring to take the next step in life, whatever that may be, but also trying to hold on to what things were like a couple of years ago and how fast kind of all that changes when you have a kid at that age. Um, yeah, I thought it was really good. Uh, let's move on to the movie. Now, when I talked to you about this movie about an hour after having seen it, yeah. I, said it I said it was my second favorite movie at the festival. I think it's my first favorite movie at the <laughs> festival. I mean, I like A Hidden uh, Life more, but I didn't see that at the festival, so I don't know how you count that. Um, yeah. Uh, so this is Kiyoshi Kurosawa's To the Ends of the Earth. Um, this had been on my short list of things to see at TIFF, Toronto National Film Festival, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't get to see it there, and I'm so glad that I got to catch it here. Um, I don't know. I've only ever seen one other Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie, which is also not a horror movie. This one is not a horror movie. Same. He's, uh, which one have you seen? Journey to the Shore. Okay, I've seen Bright Future. Okay. Uh, he's known for horror, and yet right. uh, the only ones I've seen are not horror movies. Although Bright Future does fall into that sort of like early 2000s when every like Japanese or Korean movie was like had something crazy about oh, sure. it, you know um, so Bright Future has, still has like mass murder and poisonous jellyfish <laughs> and stuff like that um, sure, sure. but it's not a horror movie but To the Ends of the Earth is very much not a horror movie um, but it is uh, about someone struggling with uh, anxieties yeah um, it's a, a Japanese woman who's the host of a sort of cheesy Japanese travelogue TV show uh, she has to be very perky and very upbeat. She's probably like mid twenties, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And uh, she's in Uzbekistan filming an episode uh, on Uzbekistan. Meanwhile, she's uh, in. She's trying to stay in contact with her firefighter boyfriend back in Tokyo. Um, uh, she's uh, exploring parts of Uzbekistan on her own that uh, the where the film isn't shooting, um, constantly getting lost. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, but what I did tell you, Scott, is that, uh, it, 
also because this kind of has a musical number. Right. It kind of has two. Um, uh, again, I thought of you, but I feel like this is a Scott and I movie in another way. Okay. And cause I told you that and you were like, I'm going to want to talk about what you mean right. by that. And so I was like, what do I mean? By that? <laughs> and so I think this is a movie where uh, like, it's telling a story and there is a character arc. Right. But I also feel like the movie is so unrelentingly in the moment that you could drop into any one scene in the movie and get something out of that scene. And that feels like it speaks to the Scott and I, that that's I a good know. point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, um, it also has my single favorite scene of any movie, uh, any movie, the festival, maybe my, one of my favorite scenes of the year, which is just, because it's a travelogue show, she has to do multiple takes of things. And so she has to ride this amusement park ride three times in a row. And it's like, it is not really a ride. It's really like something they would use in Proxima to train an astronaut. <laughs> yeah. It just like spins her around in circles. Um, and this is the one part where I, where I almost felt like, uh, oh yeah, this is a horror movie director because it yeah. does the way that it, when the, you get the, the, the sort of medium shots of her before and after, and you see what it's done to her. But when the thing's in motion, he just steps back and shows you this machine spinning. And it is weirdly like imposing and threatening seeming, but also kind of funny. Oh yeah. Cause like they'll stop and she's like, that was too intense. And they're like, let's do another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the thing you're talking about with it kind of having elements you could like, drop in and out on obviously one of the things I liked about it yeah. uh, because it kind of uh, expresses an element of travel that you don't see in a lot of movies where like it does feel like especially when you're traveling in a foreign place alone which she does is with the crew but like you said she does go off and around sometimes when you're traveling in a foreign place alone it does feel like anything could happen at any moment and you could be completely unprepared for what's going to happen because you don't speak the local language you don't really know how to get around uh, she doesn't seem to she has a smartphone but she doesn't seem to use it for like any kind of map usage she like seems to just rely on paper maps and signs or whatever so her ability to kind of navigate the world on her own is pretty tenuous and it really reminded me uh, there's a part in when Julie and I went to France where I set off on my own for a few days and there were times when I wasn't sure I'd be able to get back at home by the end of the night uh, and it really kind of got to that feeling there's a great scene where she goes off, kind of films her own thing, a market and winds up filming something illegally and has to run away from the police that has kind of a horror movie element because she ends up in these like vast, uh, abandoned spaces that feel mm-hmm. kind of haunted in their own way. Um, and yeah, just every scene highlights how badly things are going and how out of place she feels, but the way it kind of, even though these elements feel disconnected, the way it suddenly builds an arc where she starts to feel more sure of herself and starts to feel more okay in the land becomes, I think, really effective and really moving and beyond these kind of elements that are very finely wrought on their own. I think that central arc is why I ultimately loved the film because it does kind of tie it all together. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was trying to think of what else I was just about to say about the movie, but, but well, I'll agree with you that it's, uh, that, that feeling of travel, it does seem to be, uh, it's up there with, uh, you know, it's a very different movie than lost in translation. It's up sure. to, it like the, the feeling of being in another place. Um, and, and, uh, the sort of, uh, it's, it's weird because you're, it's a travelogue show. You're seeing 
lakes and, and, and mountains and beautiful architecture and things that are very filmic, but because she's essentially alone, like you said, there's a crew, but as you mentioned, they keep making her ride the thing. And they're not a, very nice to her. Right. It is a crew. She's the only woman on this trip. It's right. a crew of all men. And so, so it's also very interior at the same yeah, time. for sure. Which is um, how, yeah. And even just in basic film language, like he'll, and this helps because she's in front of the camera, they're behind the camera, but she'll, he'll, the director will separate them in a way so that she does feel very apart from them. Mm-hmm. And she has no real say over the uh, trajectory of the show. She just gets a script and has to read whatever's in front of her, has to react to whatever's happening, but has to react positively to whatever's happening. Yeah. Even if she's eating food she hates, she have to, has to act like she likes it. Um, and I was wondering at first, like, why a Japanese film in Uzbekistan? It turns out that, I guess, it's the 25th anniversary of diplomatic relations between the country. And, and specifically the that... The 70th anniversary of this construction or reconstruction of this uh, theater that they go Opera to. Opera House. Yeah. The Navoy Opera House. Yeah, that I won't get into kind of the details of the construction because it wasn't a happy experience necessarily, but it is a small, like... Japanese center within Uzbekistan that I found really interesting. Actually, there is like kind of a weird through line of films in this festival that are have this international angle where like here's a Japanese film made in Uzbekistan. We'll talk in a couple of minutes about a French film made by a Japanese director earlier. Terrence Malick's Hidden Life was an American film set in Germany. You know, there's always kind of yeah. like international bands of cultures coming together and clashing and things kind of bouncing off each other. Uh, sometimes in the oh, case yeah. of a movie like Baccarat, not positively. Yeah. Um, We've also got a Romanian movie that's set partially in the Canary Islands. Yeah, right? totally. We're coming uh, up here. Yeah. It was a weird kind of through line I noticed throughout this festival yeah. of inter- international relations, but not like necessarily building to this utopia ideal, but recognizing that we'll have some struggles getting there. And this is, I think definitely taps into that as well. So that's, to reiterate, Kyoji Kurosawa is to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, it does not have distribution this time. It's got to. Someone's got to. I would hope. I would hope I mean, so. Journey to the Shore didn't die there, and that's a really great movie. Too bad. Uh, so, yes. Um, Hirokazu Koryeda's uh, The Truth is the next movie, which is the uh, one of the, I would say, one of the one of my favorite directors working today, sure. uh, his first venture outside of Japan, right? Yeah. Um, in which he's made a movie that's set in, in France, uh, stars Julie Pinochet and Catherine Deneuve, and also Ethan Hawke um, as a professional actor uh, who is, I think, unlike Ethan Hawke. I don't think yeah, he's supposed he, he's, to be... Well, he's not supposed to be successful. He's like starring in this TV show, and that's his big break. Oh, right, okay. Is that yeah. he has a role in like a procedural kind of show. Right, right. Um, and, and Catherine Deneuve plays like this very storied, legendary French actress who very much looks down at Ethan Hawke, who's married to her daughter, played by Juliette Binoche. Who's a screenwriter. Who's a screenwriter. Yeah. Um, and it has that kind of light, airy French quality. Uh, Catherine Deneuve has just written her memoirs and has left out uh, mm-hmm. some key details of her life, which is kind of where the title comes from and where a lot of the conflict in the movie comes from. Uh, and... You know, not much gets resolved, but a lot gets explored. Uh, I thought this was a really sturdy, really beautifully wrought film. Uh, Catherine Neuve is also, within the context of the film, this is what you were alluding to earlier, she's shooting a movie about a female actress, or not, uh, actually a woman who has some terminal illness who has to go to space to prolong her life because in space you don't age as fast. So the premise premise of the movie within the movie that they're shooting is that this woman, yeah, she's an astronaut who has two years to live yeah. and she, but she, if she goes to space and only ages, whatever, a month or so, time. and she, but she, yeah, <laughs> she comes back at seven years later. So throughout the movie, 
within the movie she's coming back every seven years and so it's the same actress playing the mother the whole time but Catherine Deneuve plays her daughter it's at, like the, at the end, end of, of this film life. yeah um, I really want to see this movie by the way <laughs> that's you made me laugh in your review when you you like as an aside like yeah. I want to see this movie because I kind of had the same thought uh, it sounds great um, but, but that movie kind of gets reflects in a very abstract way the kind of the central drama of like feeling like you've missed out on your life and Catherine Deneuve's character feels like she made the right decisions throughout her life of uh, uh, foregrounding her acting career at the expense of her family she's like I got to be a great actress what else could you want out of life uh, but Juliette Binoche has all these lingering issues that she wants in some way resolved or at least addressed uh, which form the kind of central drama and which forms some really rich scenes. I mean, especially the one at the end between the two of them is so evocative and so beautifully wrought. Um, I tweeted this comment or retweeted someone's comment earlier that was complaining about people finding the film too light. And especially after seeing it, I can't imagine why people would say that. And I, I had seen, cause I had seen that comment before I saw the movie uh, on your Twitter and I just, um, even on its face, I, I disagree. Like yeah. you said, it's about like it's a three famous people, movie. but I'm saying just the fact that it's set in, this sort of rarefied air of like, uh, you know, a big French movie star makes it feel like it doesn't feel slight at all. It feels like it's I mean, a big, I don't know how many recent Catherine new movies you've seen. A lot of them feel pretty slight. <laughs> uh, I don't know when the last, uh, Catherine yeah. new movie, uh, I saw was, but, um, yeah, I, I feel like, um, uh, I know I do this all the time. I talk about this all the, all the time. They're Catherine Deneuve and Julie Binoche are, are great. And because, they're Catherine Newton and Julie Binoche. Right. We know they're going to be great. But I feel like I want to step up to defend Ethan Hawke because I still... Uh, I don't think there's anything to defend Oh, I think point. because of people like Tyler who <laughs> didn't like Ethan Hawke for so long. Um, but he's fantastic. I like him in uh, First Reformed uh, and he's, uh, other stuff, I'm it, sure. He's he, he's really great here. Um, you know, playing the his uh, insecurities. And it's almost it's almost pathetic how easily Catherine Newton can play can play him well it's easy because he doesn't speak french and like as soon as anyone starts speaking french he's like freaking out that he can't understand what's going on but even that like he speaks enough french to know when he's being insulted there's a great moment when she's she catherine was talking to julie binoche about his performance yeah and he and he picks out the word imitation right yeah and like you see him like it's a it's a really well played uh moment because my my guess is in real life ethan hawk probably speaks pretty good French. That may be at this point. <laughs> it's hard to say. He seems like a guy who could just get on anywhere in life, depending on how much he knows or doesn't know. Yeah. Um, uh, but I also always forget, I don't know why I forget this, but here, because of is so good with kid actors. And even here, he doesn't, I don't think speak French, uh, but there's a little French girl who is yeah. amazing in the movie. Just oh, watching yeah. her walk up the stairs with her big suitcase. Oh, is yeah. so funny. Oh yeah. And there's a the whole thing about a, um, turtle that may or may not be a transmogrified human being (laughs) (laughs) oh such a good movie uh all right and then uh, another movie that i saw uh at that film festival in toronto um (laughs) where they show movies from around the world which one is that okay got got (laughs) Um, uh the last agnes varda movie varda by agnes yeah uh i i don't think it's as i mean it's obviously drawn comparisons to beaches of agnes i don't think it's as sturdy as that um well here's the thing and i think i said this in my tiff review Beaches of Agnes is about her history, like personal history with the films. Yeah. Varda by Agnes is more a film about filmmaking. Yeah, I guess that's true. And maybe because it wasn't as personal or even as personal as Faces Places was, mm-hmm. um, it felt a little less weighty, which is fine. I mean, it's still a really refreshing 
really engaging discussion about art and especially getting into her installation work, which is rarely discussed in part because it's hard for most people to see it. Um, it was really cool to get an insight into that. Um, and there's that great part where I captioned this on Twitter, but a little girl like runs back to the shack to watch this movie that I'm just oh, part yeah. of made. Um, and yeah, there's a lot in there that's really well worthwhile. Even, I mean, I haven't seen all of on as far as movies. And so even the ones I hadn't seen, I got a lot out of, but I really loved her discussion of Lipanor, which is my favorite Ani Sivarta movie. Um, it brought out a lot, especially in its reflection of uh, kind of impressionist painting, which I never quite actively identified. But I was like, oh yeah, that's why it's so like engaging right away. Is it kind of taps into that same feeling as those paintings? Uh, yeah, I, I, I like. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not trying to make the case that it's uh, uh, a rival to Beaches of Agnes, which sure. is uh, one of her best, her best one movies. of my favorites yeah. for sure. Uh, and then finally, um, we'll end with the movie that I started AFI Fest with, wait, wait. Uh, which is Cornelio Porumbuyu's Close Cor- Corumbuyu's uh, The Whistlers. Yeah, I. Which uh, I'm I know this. Tyler's not listening anymore, but uh, Tyler would love The Whistlers. I'm listening. Okay, I just don't have anything to contribute. Um, well, you would love this movie. Uh, it I'm is, still kind of digesting. I'm seeing it again in a couple of weeks, and I'll be honest. What's it about? Well, it's what a, is it about? It's an. I, I would. Con- it's a kind of. Uh, neo detective noir, I guess about a detective who is, um, not, he's like the Willie Loman of detectives. I think he's like, not well liked. Ooh, I like that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Already I'm on board. Um, and so the more, uh, his, his more flagrantly, uh, corrupt, coworkers and bosses, uh, the woman who plays his boss is so great. I forget her name. Yeah, absolutely. Um, don't respect him as much, but it turns out that he is uh, corrupt in his own way and is also yeah. working. So it has kind of, not to the extent of like a, um, a Yojimbo uh, type of what's the, what's the, um, I'm forgetting two things. I'm forgetting the, name of the <laughs> author and the name of the book. Dashiell Hammett, Red Harvest. Dashiell Hammett, Red Harvest. It had, so it's sort of it, uh, sort of him playing the cops and mm-hmm. the crooked cops and the criminals against each other. But it's not it's not as plot heavy as that, right? But it's also like I mean, it's very like cleverly and thoughtfully structured. Mm. Which yeah. I mean, I like Promise movies in general, but most of them are so slow paced that it's a breeze to keep up with what's going on because like two things happen. Uh, so I was pretty caught off guard pretty immediately by just how, uh, inventive and kind of crisscrossing the structure is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause it starts with him already like in the Canary islands, uh, then flashes back to Romania and then you get the Romanian story before and after the Canary, he goes to the Canary islands to learn a whistling language. There are people, who live in the remote parts of the Canary Islands who communicate by whistling. And he's being taught the whistling language by this organized crime organization. That's, <laughs> that's redundant. Yeah. This organized crime concern uh, <laughs> that, that, that he's helping out because they want him to be able to use the whistling to signal hmm. without uh, getting, getting caught. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, so it is, I guess there is a lot of plot, to it but i still feel like it's mostly about this the the character first oh for sure but i guess just tracking the timelines and stuff and like the way things overlap and it kind of has a quality of like stacking these elements and then cinching them together at the very end i think by the time there's like kind of the final it's not really a raid per se but it's kind of a final confrontation yeah um uh, how do you say his last name prambu prambu i I was putting the emphasis on the i i was saying porambu 
but maybe it is I think you're probably right. No, I don't know. I, I, I've never heard it said, but, um, he's also, uh, I think of this, um, the Romanian new wave. Uh, I feel like he's the one who works in comedy the most, or at least I, maybe I think at least that of the exports, it's hard uh, to say. Oh for sure. yeah, that's true. Um, cause 1208, 1208 East of Bucharest, which I think, 10 years ago made my best of the aughts list. Mm. I think so. I think, uh, it might've been on that. Um, is a very funny movie. That's also very sad, uh, in a way. And I feel like you get a lot of that here. Like, uh, this, uh, the whistlers is often very funny yeah. in a very dry way. Um, yeah, there's a part where a sort of doofus character stumbles into the wrong place and then gets killed off screen. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, that's terrible, but it's also really funny. <laughs> um, and just watching him learn the whistling language. Oh yeah. Cause you have to like put your finger in your mouth in a certain way. How and, badly like, sitting in the theater did oh, you want to do it? For sure. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's all we saw. Oh, the only thing I was going to say, oh, sure. <laughs> what's doubly funny about, how quickly that character gets killed off as he's played by an American who was at the screening that I went to. Oh, really? Yeah. And so before the movie, they're like, special guest, we have this actor. I was like, wonder who he plays in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, again, Tyler, you'd love the Whistlers. It sounds uh, like a lot of fun. Uh, and I had a great time at AFI Fest. I hope it still exists next year. Uh, American <laughs> Film sure Institute will. Fest, right? Yeah, this, that's true. Sorry, presented AFI Fest Audi. 2019 presented by Audi. There we go. Uh, you can find all of uh, Scott's reviews and, and uh, my reviews uh, of the films that we discussed today, most of them, uh, at uh, com. You can also email me and Tyler at david at com or tyler at com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Davy pretension. Uh, what do we have on the, uh, so on the website this week? Yeah, we've got uh, mostly AFI fest coverage, but, uh, some other stuff. Alex has a couple of, uh, uh, articles and videos this week. We also on the Patreon this week, we did what, somehow uh, our loyal listeners are clamoring for which is tyler and i broke down our fantasy award season teams mm-hmm. um i'm uh, as i would be if i were playing fantasy football my season's already over um oh i don't before think it's so. begun yeah it's over um why do you say that because of christian bale I, you can make a, a one <laughs> trade and you're one good. trade uh, there are a couple people in that category that have not been claimed. We'll see. And we'll see. Yeah. Uh, but you can hear us discuss it a much more. You can hear a much more optimistic me because we recorded it <laughs> sure. previously. Um, I yeah. do in the video. There's a couple things that we comment on. And then in, I had in a Star Wars scrolling text style, like since this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, so that's at the, at the website this week. Tyler's on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Mm-hmm. Anything else to plug? Yes. Oh. Uh, at more than one lesson dot com. There's uh, a review of Ford v Ferrari, a review of Frozen 2. And as of the 26th, more than one lesson will be back as a podcast. All right. So. As Very of, excited for that. As of Tuesday. Tuesday. November 26th. Yeah. Uh, so stay Scott, tuned. where can people find you on the internet? Uh, mostly at Battleship Pretension these days between AFI Fest now. Yeah. So I also reviewed Why do you say that so for in such a defeated way? I'm, I didn't mean to be okay. defeated. I enthusiastic there we go so okay. excited uh yeah i also reviewed ford v ferrari and something else oh the report the that report. week yeah. uh and then a ton of afi fest stuff obviously and i think i have some other stuff due next week that i'll deal with in short time okay <laughs> <laughs> and on twitter at rail tomorrow uh all right well thanks for joining us yeah thanks for having me thanks for listening we'll get you next time bye bye
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.